It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. Ah, uh, and... We are getting close to the season on the line. <laughs> yep. Uh, we're beginning with chapter 111, The Pacific. We yeah. have finally arrived at The Pacific. Yeah, that's right. Um, this, is, this, is, this is the ocean where the whaling happens. The most of the whaling. Happens. Yeah, yeah. The, the best whaling. This is the, this is the ocean where the season on the line yes. is. Yes. This is... You might say this is the stage for our final and, to some extent, most significant events of this voyage um, before we get to the end of the book, and we are quite close. It's really surprising to me in retrospect, looking back, how much of the book was spent getting to the Pacific compared to how much is physically of the book is going to be spent in the Pacific. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Like, um... And, you know, this this kind of reflects, like, the weird uh, timing of the Pequod's voyage, right? Where it's had, like, it's it's been traveling for so long before getting to the season on the line, which is mm-hmm. not how a normal whaling voyage would go. Yeah, well, normally a whaling voyage would take this long to get there. It's just that uh, rather than trying to set out in good seasons, Ahab set out when he would arrive at the very beginning of the season on the line, guaranteed. And this seems like less of a concern for other whaling boats since we've been passing through the book, in large part because you're just expected to be out there for years. And that is something, I think, that is very strange about the timing of the Pequod and its voyage, because it's after one whale, and Ahab wants to meet him as soon as possible. So rather than setting out for, you know, a couple years, fill your cask with, um... Fill your casks with oil and then take off. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's instead, that makes sense. uh, not like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, they, they, as, as we've been saying, they emerge in the Pacific in chapter 111. And, uh, Ishmael has some things to say about this ocean. <laughs> um. Does he ever not? Well, yeah, but he has some things to say about specifically the Pacific Ocean as opposed to other oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, which he, he kind of, uh. So, um, he, he says that, uh, that, that he, something that I'm not clear on in this chapter and that I think is like of interest is mm-hmm. whether Ishmael has previously been in the Pacific because mm. on the one hand he seems, so he is clearly like deeply moved by seeing the Pacific ocean and yes. in some sense it's like the, um, the satisfaction of a long-held desire. Yeah, he says, uh, The long supplication of my youth was answered. That serene ocean rolled eastwards from me a thousand leagues of blue. And that does make it sound like this was the first time he came to the Pacific. Which, if he'd previously been, um, when he did go to sea, been going on transatlantic, like, uh, traveling ships, there's not really a lot of call to be in the Pacific besides as a whaleman for 
uh, boats from Nantucket. Yeah, that does seem probably true. Although, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are, like, American trading vessels that end mm-hmm. up in the Pacific because there's, like, meaningful trade with, like, Asia that probably goes that way sometimes. Yeah, no, there's, but... there's various trades. There's also various, you know, this is the mid-1800s, so... I think England probably still has a very strong trading monopoly in a lot of those regions as well, but I, I don't know. And I'm sure there are American... Oh, actually, I think that... Um, I can't remember the precise timeline, but uh, Commodore Perry's gunboat diplomacy to forcibly open J- Japanese ports is either the recent past or the near future. Yeah, I, I think that was maybe 1848? I could believe that it's around the right time for uh, American and British adventurism in uh, in Pacific waters. Things like the you know naval component of the Opium Wars, uh, which yeah, no, not none of these are covering the European powers with glory. Let's sure, be sure, clear. sure. I I think we don't really need to explain to people that yeah. like the way that Europeans interacted with like. The Asia, rest of the world. The rest of the world, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, via, especially via, like... Literal gunboat diplomacy? Yeah, yeah. I don't think we need to explain to people that that's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's... did get the date wrong. Um, the the Convention of Kanagawa was in 1854. So that's in the very... This is this book's 1853, right? Or, uh, I like... thought it was 1850. Well, oh, okay. anyways, slightly before... It's slightly before Japan is uh, opened. Yes. So that, that explains some of the use of language in this book, which I'd wondered if it was being slightly, you know, uh, archaic or if it was literally at the case that at this time, Japan was not, you know, open for trade. Foreigners were not allowed uh, in for the most part. Um, and in fact, there's a reference in this chapter, I think, to, yes, impenetrable Japans used as a general concept for, like, islands that the American voyager cannot visit. Yeah. Um yeah, also, you know, regardless of uh, when precisely we are, regardless of when exactly this book was published in real life or when Ishmael is supposed to have written it, the voyage of the Pequot is supposed to have taken place, like... Significantly before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it would have been before it was possible for Americans to visit Japan. Yes, so that so that explains the sort of place Japan has figuratively in the text. Um so yeah, I think it's fair to say that this is Ishmael's first voyage into the Pacific, and it really hits him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, uh, he he compares the Pacific Ocean to the um, the ground on uh, St. John the Evangelist's gravesite. Um, because there's a, there's a legend um, that basically, because he is not dead but just sleeping um the ground over where john the evangelist is buried moves with his breath in his sleep ah i did i did not recognize that uh reference so that's re- that's really cool actually yeah credit yes. credit as always to powermobydick.com i didn't know that on my own thanks <laughs> powermobydick.com we are not sponsored by powermobydick.com yeah there, uh, <laughs> there's also there's a specific basilica in real life where does it like uh, bounce well I mean, listen, I mean, Ben. Presumably, it presumably does not visibly bounce. But I'm just saying, is the legend that it bounces? Uh, not the entire. The legend is not that the entire basilica bounces. Because no. I was just going to say that would take some really strong lungs. I I think the belief is that uh, the like dirt around the the altar and like the tomb 
Okay, moves. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. In any case, this is uh, um, something Ishmael refers to as a sweet mystery about this sea. Um, and he talks about how there's sort of a hidden soul to the Pacific. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that, like, this is, overall, I, I would say, like, a very kind of, um, you know, Ishmael is is in awe, he he is moved by beauty, but, but there is, like, a kind of, uh, there is something um, dangerous about this. Yes. In, like, this comparison to the, the tomb of St. John is, like, he, he is talking about the ocean as a tomb. Yes, right? As a and, place where people are drowned, where dead people lie dreaming beneath the surface. Yeah, and he does explicitly say that meat it is, that over these sea pastures, wide rolling watery prairies and potter's fields of all four continents, the waves should rise and fall and ebb and flow unceasingly. For here, millions of mixed shades and shadows, drowned dreams, sonambulisms, reveries, all that we call lives and souls lie dreaming, dreaming still, tossing like slumberers in their beds, the ever-rolling waves but made so by their restlessness. So this idea that the the motion of the uh, Pacific brings to mind both like sleep and sereneness, but also death and the grave and this sort of weird uh, afterlife that Ishmael imagines for all who lie within it. Since a potter's field, after all, is the, um, basically it's a grave site for those with unmarked graves. Yes. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, he says that, that basically, uh, that to anyone, to any meditative Magian rover, which I think basically means, like, any thoughtful wanderer. Yeah, or, or someone, I think, with a, Power Moby Dick says contemplative, but I would say also with a kind of magical or mystical sense. Yeah. A philosopher, in other words, as Ishmael sort of approaches them. Yeah, like, I think Magian... Honestly, uh, something, I feel like, I feel like, um, Zoroastrianism has come up A lot in this book, yes. Like, it's come up quite often in the book in general, but I feel like it's been increasingly yeah. in I recent mean, chapters. I'm pretty sure Fadala is supposed to be Zoroastrian. Yes, I think yes. that's true. He's, he's, uh... He's a Parsi. Yeah, he, he keeps being referred to as a Parsi, which means, like, Persian. Um, yeah, but, I, hmm, I thought that there was a specific ethnicity that is also, that is called Parsi, that is... Possibly that's just the sort of uh, endonym with an with an I. Okay, so 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 oh. Parsi. Okay, first of all, yes, Parsis in real are in fact. I I think the way that this book uses the word Parsi is in a kind of like racist vein. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. I just mean that I think that Fadal is supposed to be the actual ethno-religious group called Parsi. Yes, and uh, there is also like. Uh, so they are a people whose, uh, uh, like, dominant religion is Zoroastrianism. And also, the word Parsi means Persian in Persian. Ah. Uh, so the, the the fact that I was like, oh, Parsi just means yeah, Persian yeah, no, 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 is absolutely. understandable. But, yes. but also, yes, I think there are other uh, ethnic groups that are also Persian. Um, yes. But yeah, um... In any case, Fadala is clearly Zoroastrian, although what exactly Fadala believes, we don't really get to know, because it's very hard to get... The book is, like, basically insisting that it is impossible to get inside Fadala's head. Yeah, also, like, the concept of, like, fire worshipper keeps yeah, coming up, yeah. right? Yeah, the way, the way Zoroastrianism is understood is strange. Right, and, and like, I mean, there's an interesting kind of interplay here, because 
like, what exactly does fire worshipper mean to the people in this book, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think Stubb used that to talk about Fidala in a very, yeah. like, contemptuous way during uh, the doubloon. Yeah, yeah, as also part of him calling Fidala literally a devil. Yes, exactly. So there's associations with hell there. But on the other hand, he's also saying that because he thinks Fidala is, like, worshipping the sun, mm-hmm. which, you know... Uh, not usually an infernal symbol. Right, like, you know, Christians don't consider themselves to literally worship the sun, but at the same time, the sun is often identified with God or, like, with heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, uh, in much the same way that Christians would be like, oh, yes, like, the sun maybe represents God, but we don't literally worship the sun. That Something vaguely the same is true of, like, the relationship that Zoroastrians have to fire. They don't literally worship fire the way that the phrase yeah. fire worshiper yeah, yeah. My, was. My general understanding, which is absolutely incomplete, I'm in no way an expert on Zoroastrianism, I just find a lot of things cool in the world, um, and is that it's more that fire is seen as reflecting an aspect of or an incarnation of a certain quality of divinity that's very important. So it's both a meat symbol and a physical uh, you know, representation of this in the same way that, say, um, you know, uh, statues in, say, uh, Hindu traditions are not entirely identified with the god, but are heavily identified with the god and are often spoken as like a kind of home or an, a kind of incarnation of the god, which is why there are very particular rules for, say, finishing the statue and opening the eyes on it as a particular ritual, why there are particular rules for the careful treatment of the statue and its decommissioning, because it has this close connection. And I think at least flames used in rituals by Zoroastrians, I believe, have a similar, but not obviously not identical, uh, religious significance. Which is all to say that Stubb doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. And and as I brought up before, I think when, when we were talking about the doubloon, it's also the case that there are, like, Christian rituals that yes, involve absolutely. fire. I mean, like, candles, ever-burning flames, um, yeah, things there, like that. There's so, all sorts of things. And, you know, when we speak of physical, in, you know, uh, physical incarnations of divinity as a representative object within a sacred space, uh, you know... There is also communion, right? This is a thing that many many faiths have in various forms. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, this is all <laughs> kind of to the side yeah, of the actual religion. Well, but I do think it's relevant because, like, he's saying Magian, and so he's referring yeah, to he's the referring concept to of a, a, a magi, a, a specific Zoroastrian yeah, priest. Um, and like, I don't think that this novel has like a deep sort of, uh, you know internal understanding of what Zoroastrianism actually is or was in the 19th century, but I think that it is very interested in it as kind of a symbol. Almost, it makes me think of the way that the word, like, Kabbalistic gets used. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, just as sort of a gesture toward mysticism. There's this this way in which, and I don't think this is unique to Moby Dick, um, and I think this is, in fact, often just a quality of Orientalist discourse in general, um, that religions that are not Christian, and apparently including Judaism, but also, you know, obviously Zoroastrian in this case, get sort of boiled down to a single concept. Mm. Like, this religion is all about X. Whereas, like, you can try and do that to religion, but it's completely ignoring the actual vast cultural and ritualistic and historical weight and like elaboration on the religion that make it not just a pure expression of a principle whereas 
Uh, I think that in this book, you know, there is something about fire, the sun, and Zoroastrianism that is all very, in some ways, simplistically, symbolically aligned. Yeah. In the same way that sort of Kabbalistic leads to sort of, you know, priestly ritual and kind of secretive or complicated or difficult similarly gets treated as like oh these are just synonymous this is just a religion that is all focused on the secrecy and ritual and closeness of god and it's like well those are elements that show up in judaism but they're not the whole thing yeah and you know i think we should also point out as we're talking about how this passage uses the concept of magian of a a, Mm -hmm. the meditative Magian rover is obviously Ishmael. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because what he's saying about that rover is to any person with that sort of... Any mindset. Person, yeah, any person like that with that mindset, this serene Pacific, once beheld, must ever after be the sea of his adoption. So he's basically saying, well, if you are a person with the right frame of mind, once you see the Pacific, you are like a devoted to the Pacific. And like, clearly that is what is happening yes. to Ishmael. Yeah, he goes on to argue that the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans are merely the arms of the Pacific, that it is like the ultimate uh, ocean, in effect. It is the true ocean or the heart of oceans. Uh, it seems the tide-beating heart of Earth. And he um, even associates it with his own pantheism. Yeah, well, so this, I'm very interested because, okay, the, the sentence at the end of this paragraph yeah. that we're talking about is, Lifted by those eternal swells, you needs must own the seductive god, bowing your head to Pan. And, okay, so at the same time, I think it is possible that there's a pantheism here. We've talked about yeah, Ishmael's yeah. pantheism. He refers to ye young pantheists. However, Pan is also oh, a yeah. specific god who, yeah, is not, who is not the god of pantheism. Well, what I was going to say is I think pantheism, and I think this is a way that the just looking at the etymology often sort of misses it, I think pantheism was in the, you know, in its formulation, invoking the Greco-Roman pan as nature, as like the embodiment of nature. Well, so you may be right. It's just that uh, the, I mean, as you said, you told me not to get caught up in the etymology, but I do want to make sure people know that the the name of the god pan is not the same as the etymological root pan, which means like all. all. Yeah, the name of the god pan is not all. It has, like, a different yeah. etymology. I'll, I I am just aware that there are, I think especially Victorian, but possibly just, as possibly 1700s as well, um, writers in English who like the pun, or are not aware it is a pun, and make that sort of association between Pan as the god of nature and the god of all. And yes. I think that this is... I think that is being invoked here, because I think it's certainly nature. You know, it's the ocean. Yes. It's not the concept of, oh, you and I and she and he are all part of you know the universe it's specifically nature and the ocean and we are all part of that but i think that on some level the pantheistic approach is very much interested in nature and the material universe and like the cycles of everything yes rather at least for ishmael rather than a purely uh hyper intellectualized like pan and psychic pan and theist uh you know everything is 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 God in a very abstract and unconnected way. Yeah, I think when Ishmael is talking about pantheism, when he's kind of intellectually flirting with pantheism, a lot of it does have to do with seeing the divine in nature. Yeah. Um, have we actually defined pantheism on this podcast? Uh, I mean, probably, but also it was probably ages ago, like yeah, yeah. when the, we got to the masthead. The short version is that a pantheist is one who believes that the entire universe is synonymous with God, and therefore we are all parts of and intertangled with God. God is identical to the universe. 
Yes, and and we should also maybe you 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 also used the term panentheism. Yeah, that's a uh, slightly different thing. I just yeah. misspoke. No, yeah, panentheism uh, is like just a it is like a kind of more philosophically precisely defined idea, and I think that that is not uh, what Ishmael is up no, to. No, no, no. Um, it's panentheism is the idea that everything exists within God, and God is like within everything, but they're not necessarily identical. Whereas pantheism is the universe is God, the cosmos is God. We are all literally parts of God. Yes, um, but I I also do want to like draw. I think that pantheism is totally a part of this, this yeah. passage, and I think he sees God in the Pacific, and therefore kind of God in the world. But I also think that he is interested in the specific pagan de- deity of Pan, because he is talking about mm. the seductive god. Yes, the, so, and I imagine he's, at least I think he's imagining the peaceful, frolicking Pan, right? Yeah. Like the seductive god. The, yeah, and, and I think that this is part of, like, I think this maybe speaks to how, in some ways, Ishmael regards these, like, moments of being enchanted by nature that he mm. has. Like, I think he sees himself as, in some sense, being seduced by, like, a, a, a pagan natural force of yeah. belief um and you know he is he he is not like unhappy about it and he is also kind of saying <laughs> he's like, just saying pan should buy him dinner <laughs> and you know he is also arguing that this would happen to anyone who has this kind of perspective yeah, yeah. And so he's he is he is fundamentally not making an argument for this but rather just saying anyone could get swept up in this perspective yeah and, and he's also saying that it's a tr- it's a quality of like sentiment and good nature so i think there is an argument for it but it's it's a quieter one and the reason i say this is that immediately after this we have Mm. you know but few thoughts of pan stirred ahab's brain and it's sort of depicting ahab's resistance to the love of life and the enjoyment of nature and the serenity of the ocean like even as he breathes in sweet scents from the isles they're passing where ishmael tells us lovers must walk in those shaded woods you know even as we you know pass through this mysterious and divine pacific that um he's presenting to us ahab is completely uninterested in it insensitive to it only receives the salt spray and the awareness that somewhere out there is his enemy Yes. Yeah. Um, Ahab is, is, uh, Ahab is unchanged by the entry into the Pacific, or if he is in any way changed, it's simply by the heightening of his monomania and his dedication to his revenge because he is close to his goal. Yeah, he is completely untouched by this beautiful natural world in its sweet sense. And I think that's basically, you know, that's the end of the uh, chapter is Ahab saying, stern all, the white whale spouts thick blood um, in his sleep. Like, he's having visions of his victory against Moby Dick. Um, yeah. He's, he's only concerned with his purpose. And, you know, we've seen this before with the doubloon where Ahab's like, yes, all the world reflects me to me. My purpose is the entire world to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an interesting thing here that I just want to point out, which is, uh, right, this idea that um, uh, European settlers in America are, quote, the recentest race of men. Um, Meanwhile, there's the uh, Asiatic lands older than Abraham. And this idea of, like, the, like, various ages of civilizations and and races, it is a racist framework, um, is 
something that's shown up, I think, a bunch with, again, Fidala with, and with uh, Ishmael's sort of concepts, because he at the same time is like, yeah, there's this, like, pagan vitalism that, you know, America has both that and Christian morality, and that's sort of, like, what brings together these qualities and a dynamism. But at the same time, there's also, like, this sense of there are older and younger peoples. Yeah. And the recentest being Americans. Yes. And specifically, I'm sure, white Americans. Yeah. And um, it's... And he is also, because he's talking about the Pacific, he's talking specifically about uh, the new-built Californian towns, which is to say, you know, probably the most, like, the most recent... Recent major settlements. Exactly. Um, so, like, not only part of, uh, you know, the United States, the, like, youngest nation But it's, or it's leading... The leading edge of Manifest Destiny. <laughs> yes. In an unfortunate way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. This is... Although, this is reminding me, because I... I was one of the things that's interesting is that he has a lot of interest in Noah in this book. Mm -hmm. And one of the oldest theory, like racial theories that Europeans had was the idea that the different continents of the old world, so Europe, Asia, and Africa, were populated by the sons of Noah, Japheth, Shem, and Ham, I think, respectively. Mm -hmm. um, but I can never remember what the order of their ages are. And I know that, like, in a number of old English writings, for example, uh, the Asia is presented as the most temperate, moderate, like, me medium people and place. It's like, because, uh, frankly, the Asia they were thinking of when they were talking about that was the Middle East, where, you know, the Bible is set, where the cultural reference for medieval Christianity is all there. That's the center of the world in the Holy Land. So it makes sense that that's sort of the middle of the world, right? And the middle of people's, like, uh, body. Whereas uh, Japheth, the... Um, uh, the sun that becomes the European one, that that body of men is supposed to be in, like, a place of intense cold and, you know, privation. That's what's made us strong and hardy, and obviously this turns into white supremacism. You can see the roots there. Right. Uh, but it's interesting the way these sort of very old racial categories and religious racial categories transfer forward in various ways into more recent racisms and to Ishmael's way of thinking about the world. Uh, so... Yes. Yeah. As far as the age order, that appears to be a matter of some debate. They are always listed Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But at one point, Genesis calls Ham the youngest. And then... So there's just, there's ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. I um, think that the the framework Ishmael is working from seems most fitted to the idea that Shem is the oldest and uh, Japheth, or Japheth, the youngest because that way you have a direct linkage between the biblical Noah story and his model of Asia is the oldest place and you, the Europeans are the youngest. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, all of this is very post-hoc. I do not actually know, we, we don't actually have Ishmael saying, by the way, here's my opinions on the relative age of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yeah. But... I do think that it's interesting how this connects. Sorry, that was just a, a sidebar from that specific weird, you know, very Orientalist reference to the idea that, oh yeah, Asians, the oldest civilization. Europeans, the youngest, but the most vital. Yeah, yeah. Which is absolutely the thing being communicated there. Yeah, and I, I think th this is getting a little bit far afield, but I feel like we should just mention it as long as we're talking about the sons of Noah, um, that uh, this is also... In, in this same, like, racial framework yeah, that yeah. you've been talking about, this story also becomes a justification for a lot of, like, white supremacist beliefs about 
like black people being cursed there's yep, this idea yep. of the curse of ham um oh yeah that's that's a whole thing um and there's also the you know there's this these very early concepts of like oh you know asia is the middle child and then or the the middle like not necessarily the middle child the oldest child but like most middle and normal and reasonable and then you have the hot and cold extremes which produce europeans and africans and then there's a bunch of weird racist thoughts about what that implies about like the temperament and intelligence and all sorts of things because any framework like this often turns into a way of being wildly xenophobic yeah yeah um i i, I don't think that uh like it is of some interest i think that the actual framing of the sons of noah as the ancestors of modern races that really hasn't come up i yeah, think no. it might be a little antiquated for this time period which doesn't mean it wouldn't come up obviously i mean it's it's antiquated but it's still this is the time period of just before the civil war which is when both religious and at that point like and you know very pseudoscientific justifications for aggressively distinguishing between races for the purposes of justifying slavery as the you know, the South becomes more and more aware that there's this pressure on it to stop doing that and, you know, ultimately leads to the Civil War. The, these, this intellectual work goes into producing these categories harder and, you know, more uh, directly within American society at this time than even previously. So well, I guess what I'm saying is that while you're right that it's an, an antiquated model, it's still one that gets drawn on even up until modern white supremacists. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's mostly that the, I I think that it's not so much that the uh, you know sons of Noah tracing to like the three major races of the world. It's not so much that I think that framework uh, was like superseded by like I think it was modern super, scientific. Reason. I think it was superseded by more complicated <laughs> uh, uh, like early history understandings of the origins of races. Yeah, by that's the 1850s. fair. In any um, case, in any case, uh, Ishmael definitely thinks that Asia is like the old place in a very standard, like Edward Said having a moment standard uh, Orientalism. Yes, absolutely. He has frequently talked about like uh, the parts eternal, of Asia. unchanging, ancient, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like the precise textbook definition of orientalism yes yes that and that is totally continuing to happen here yep uh and the pacific is getting a certain energy from that where it's like ah the pacific becomes this linkage between the pole the dynamic poles of the ancient and eternal and the new and dynamic and this is like this makes it this meeting point of the world and it's like that's not 100 percent racist but it's pretty racist yeah yeah shall we Anyways. uh shall we move on yeah yeah I don't want it to sound like I think his, his account of the Pacific isn't, like, moving. I just wanted to be clear that I think that this this way of thinking about spaces and divisions of peoples and so on is important to it as well. Yes. No, yeah. definitely. <sighs> and now let's get to something completely different. Yeah, so this chapter 112 is called The Blacksmith, uh, and this is where we're going to get a little more information and, and some backstory about the Pequod's blacksmith, whose name is Perth. Um, oh, Perth. Yeah, this is a sad chapter. Um, it's... It's grim. So so what's actually happening in the narrative at this point is that the blacksmith keeps his forge on deck for a while after, like, making the sort of fittings for Ahab's new leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess because, basically, it's, it's mild weather, so it's not too hot, I think, is one major reason for this. And then also, um, you know, presumably there's not, like, huge storms, which would also make it a bad idea to have a forge <laughs> on deck. Uh, anyway, so... 
He's got his forge out. He's working on it. Um, presumably everyone has been saving up all their, like, slightly dented pieces of iron the whole voyage for an opportunity like this. Yeah, I imagine he doesn't get... Because the, the forge has to be, like, assembled, uh, locked down with ring bolts, generally made both fast and, and safe on the decks. It is fire on deck. In the same way that the tripods get, like, brought out and the furnace gets set up. Um, so the um the crew just has all these things that like i'm assuming if there was something important like say ahab's leg buckle that's broken he'll bring up the forge but you know he's like i've got a dented harpoon and the answer is okay but now that it's actually up there he's just surrounded by a crowd of sailors being like please fix this yes uh and uh he he just kind of toils away steadily and like sadly at it um, with no complaint. Oh, God. Just slowly, silently. I also love this image of him, because he's surrounded by a circle of sailors, but the book is, makes uh, care takes care to note that, you know, um, an eager circle, all waiting to be served, holding boat spades, pike heads, harpoons, and lances, and jealously watching his every sooty movement as he toiled, you know, looking for a chance to get theirs fixed. But, which means he's surrounded by a circle of armed men, all sort of proffering blades to him, so that the... <laughs> You know, this image yeah. is fantastic. So he's, you know, he's hammering slowly, silently, like, bent-backed and uh, gray-headed, hammering away in this forge while surrounded by proffered blades. I would like people to know that Ben started, like, gesturing hammering. <sighs> yeah, I did. Look, Perth is... Oh, Perth is a lot, but he's also very cool. Yeah, so... Uh, it, it comes about... I. I, I always get the sense that, like, the blacksmith normally really keeps to himself, but at this point in time, because he's, like, out and working, people are, like, talking to him more than they yeah, normally would. Yeah, and also, he, um, in an early period of the voyage, uh, it's said that this came out, actually, because well, he... Well, so, so here's what I think is, I, what I actually think is going on here is that, so he has, like, kind of an unusual gait. Yes. Uh, he, he, it, 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 he, you know, he moves a little bit, uh, he sways a little when he moves, and it seems like it's painful for him to walk, and... People have been curious about this the whole time. Mm. At an early period, they've been curious since an early period of the voyage. However, it's not until now that he finally gives in and explains mm. I what think, happened. I think you might be right. I think it's, he says, and to, it says, and to the importunity of their persisted questionings, he had finally given in. So I think you're right. I think finally given in is, I think you could read this as this occurs sometime in the voyage between then and now, or that it is finally as he's at his forge now that they their questions reach the point where he explains how it happened and then from explaining how it turns out he basically lost all his toes yeah um from him explaining the loss of his toes to frostbite he then has to explain the context in which this happened and then everything comes out about his life yeah so like the 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 incident uh that you know led to his pained gait uh, that he explains is that at some point he was uh, fleeing, running between two country towns in like a desolate road in the middle of winter and he took shelter in a, a ruined barn and you know, got frostbite while he was there Yeah, and he, uh, he survived but lost his uh, the extremities of his feet as it puts it and also he describes it as belated and not innocently one bitter winter's midnight on the road running between two countries town two country towns so he was not 
merely like walking from place to place but there was some some reason that does not reflect well on him that he had to flee that way yeah like i i sort of assume he was i mean you know he he was a vagabond right so yeah. like he he was uh fleeing under cover of night because he couldn't stay in the place where he had been maybe because he'd been stealing but you know very possibly just because like it's illegal to be a vagabond in yeah. a lot of places I mean, I it's don't illegal know. to be homeless often well, so i don't think that political regimen existed at the time but it was entirely possible you just get rousted out if they didn't like you like, yeah i mean I, I think that the idea of just like being a like a like a beggar or like yeah. an indigent person who is just like hanging around in a space i don't think that like the same kind of system of laws that we currently have in the modern mm-hmm. day that makes that illegal necessarily I mean, this existed. is before the development of the like the modern policing at least or it's yeah in the, or i guess this would be presumably if this was not too long ago because he's not much older than when this happened as we'll see in his life's description so you know there's there's some intimations of modern policing at this time but... yeah but the, the major thing is that like i think it has been the case for a lot of human oh, history yes. that if you are like a like an unsupported person just like in a place people and, will chase you out yes and i mean basically you have no recourse if people chase you out exactly so it's entirely and, possible and i think that like just being you know without without family and without a home like, I think that is something that is sometimes viewed as, quote, not innocent. Yeah, well, um. yeah. I I think that also it's part of it is that he's, as we will see, has some decent decent reasons to feel pretty bad about everything in his life. Yeah. And it could well be just self-loathing. Yeah. So, so the, this, you know, this story kind of leads to the question of, like, what happened to you? How did you end up there? And out of this revelation, part by part, at last came out the four acts of the gladness, and the one long and as yet uncatastrophied fifth act of the grief of his life's drama. And I like that use of uncatastrophied, because in this case, it's like the, the dramaturgical use of catastrophe, which is like the event that ends the act that's like exciting or, you know, like, it's the big event, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's dramaturgical. I think it's just drama like drama drama dramaturgy is a specific thing oh, okay. it's, it's like I... a kind of like research that people do in producing films or producing plays oh that's interesting i i thought dramaturgy was literally just the practice of producing drama like like not acting but so it's a it like it's the study of dramatic composition okay so it's so you're not doing dramaturgy when you do composition you're doing dramaturgy when you write about doing composition Yes, exactly. Um, and like a, yeah. So anyway. Yeah, it's the study of. That makes sense. So Sorry to like nitpick your language. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyways, so, although that would still make it a dramaturgical term because it's a, it's about the study of and description of drama. Yeah, you might be right. I, I guess I think I did have a narrower idea of what dramaturg, because I had heard of the idea of a, a dramaturge being a person who is involved in the production of a play. Because As, like, a specific role. Yeah, because that, that'll be, like, potentially, like, an academic or something. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same person as, like, the director. Yes. Right? Um, but uh, but I think you were also basically correct that, like, a catastrophe is, like, a theoretical term that refers to dramatic structure. So, yeah, you were right in the first place. Cool, cool. Anyway. I uh, love to be right. So, yeah. Anyways. I, I think it's interesting. He refers to the four acts, but I don't think we really hear the four acts of the I mean, gladness. I'm assuming they're... Just shortly, I think they're things like, you know, being young, apprenticeship, getting, you know, getting married, having a family. Like, I think the point is that he's had this long and varied life because he's 60 Mm -hmm. when 
his fifth act begins, as you as this uh, puts it. Um, so he's had a long life, but now things have become grim. I yes. used grim before, but that's really the word I have for this. I love this first line when it gets into things going wrong. Do you want to read it, or may I? Go ahead, go ahead. He was an old man who, at the age of nearly 60, had postponedly encountered that thing in Sorrow's technicals called ruin. And technicals here meaning, like, technical language. You know, like, draw... <laughs> you know, that you know, thing that Sorrow has in its list of tools. Ruin. Yes, exactly. The the thing that, you know, if Sorrow were called upon to give an account, would be like, ah, yes, he has been ruined. This is ruin. Um, and it gives this idea that it's almost like schematic and that's the way the rest of this story is told as well it's not like told particularly dramatically it's just laying out the beats of a story that i think you're supposed to recognize in its basic qualities but with it's biting it's yeah it's a lot so so you know in 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 brief what happened to perth the blacksmith is that yeah he was a he was a very successful artisan and he had a, a house and a garden and a young wife and three children. Um, Every Sunday went to a cheerful-looking church planted in a grove. So yeah, he was living the good life. Yeah, he's the ideal, like, Protestant work ethic, New England life. Yes. And then, uh, as, well, as the narrative frames it, uh, one night under cover of darkness, a desperate burglar slid into his happy home. And then there's like a few more sentences of buildup. And then you get revealed that the burglar is the bottle. He was he the became... bottle conjurer, as put, which is apparently a reference to uh, a specific popular performer in England. Yeah. Um, so I think the phrase "the bottle conjurer" does just mean alcohol here. Yes, but, absolutely. It's but like... the phrase "the bottle conjurer" comes from a specific historical figure. Uh, PowerMobyDick.com says the great bottle conjurer was a performer who, in 1749 in London, claimed to be able to fit himself into an ordinary quart bottle. After a theater full of people paid to see his act, they learned it was a scam and destroyed the theater. Yep. So uh, I think that the specific concept of, like, um, the concept of a scam, of a trick, of, of criminality, like the idea that the alcohol, the bottle itself, is, like, a villain that has been led into his home, and that's, you know, it's continuing the conceit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's uh, there's this, like, very sad uh sort of image that's developed where like you know in in the in 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 his sort of like previous like economically health healthy life uh his his shop is in the basement um and so uh his his wife can always hear the sound of his hammer going uh while she's in you know the upper part of the house uh and and so like the that ringing noise comes up to the nursery and and her her children are rocked to sleep by the ringing of a hammer from yeah, the basement. Yeah, it's described as, To stout labor's iron lullaby, the blacksmith's infants were rocked to slumber. There's this idea that it's like, it's this, again, incredibly, like, Protestant work ethic, incredibly, like, you know, artisanal image of, like, yes, or artisanal not in the sense of being finely wrought, though it is, Moby Dick is an artisanal book, um, <laughs> home, you know, uh, homegrown, New England, etc. But my, my point is that it's, it's an image that has to do with artifice and craft and labor, and this idea of, like, the sound of the hammer being this assurance that everything is well, that the economic foundation of their lives is maintained, and to some extent the, like, his... Potter familias, his like position as 
the patriarch who keeps everything in order is signaled by this constant steady ringing of the hammer yes and then you know as he becomes a drunk the blows of the basement hammer every day grew more and more between and each blow every day grew fainter than the last the wife sat frozen at the window with tearless eyes, glitteringly gazing into the weeping faces of her children, etc. It gets worse and worse. They sell the house. The mother and the children die. And he just goes out into the world having lost everything. Yeah, staggers off a vagabond in crepes, which is to say in, like, uh funeral gauze he's not yeah. even wear like he's wearing like mourning rags and nothing else and staggering off into the world which is quite possibly when he loses his uh his toes he loses his toes exactly because i think that would also be a term a place where you can have like the concept of you know not innocently because he is the author of his own grief in a certain sense which you know is a bitter thing to say he, he the man needs help yeah yeah and uh, th there's this, like, very dark uh, reflection that, oh, it, it would have been so much better if he had died yes. before any of this could have happened. Oh, death, why canst thou not sometimes be timely? Hadst thou taken this old blacksmith to thyself, ere his full ruin came upon him, then had the young widow had a delicious grief, and her orphans a truly venerable, legendary sire to dream of in their after years, and all of them a care-killing competency. Which I assume is inheritance. Like, yes. They if he died before he wasted all his money, then yeah, they would have been much better off. They would have been better off. The widow would probably have been able to remarry. She was young. These, you know, there wouldn't have been any impropriety or anything. He'd been quite, you know, he'd been not ancient, but solidly old. So, like, you know, it would have been sad, but in a way that would have been generative, that would have been allowed for the next generation. It would have been, in a lot of ways kinder to his family and to him but instead he didn't die he just was ruined yes and the rest of them died and uh yeah it's just... presumably of grief right like i don't think we're meant to believe that they starved to death i mean i'm sure that they were also like in a colder like i'm just thinking of all the victorian depictions of what happens when a family is ruined where it's like yes she died of a broken heart and also of the cold and hunger well okay sure and possibly of the tb yeah you know but the there's also, God, this this phrase, you know, um, there's this idea of, but instead death didn't kill him. He probably killed someone who, you know, death took someone who was actually, you know, young and important, you know, would have, you know, kept his family alive and was not in the, like, about to ruin. Meanwhile, he left the old man to rot so that it'd be easier to harvest later. Yeah. Death is not presented as a kind figure in this. Yeah. And then, uh... The perspective that the blacksmith is presented at have, as having at this point is essentially that he wants to die. Yes. And that's why he decides to go whaling. Yeah, I gotta say, this is directly referencing Ishmael's initial motivation for going Yeah, whaling. like, this is this is kind of the the elaboration in, in, in detail and, and, like, kind of aesthetic quality of the thing that was said at the very beginning of the book that, yeah, like, this going is just, whaling is what you do instead of suicide. Yeah, in the, in the early book, remember, there was that sort of, like, discussion about how it's all kind of elliptical. It's being framed very emo emotively and beautifully, like how there's just something in people that draws them to the sea and when i get this sort of urge of self-annihilation i go to sea and so on whereas here it's being laid out schematically i, I keep using schematically for these last couple chapters but I, I really think they have that quality yeah i mean i'm not sure i would use the word schematic for this paragraph but i do mm. think it's being much more explicit about yes, this I, I maybe i'll read this sure 
Death seems the only desirable sequel for a career like this. But death is only a launching into the region of the strange untried. It is but the first salutation to the possibilities of the immense remote, the wild, the watery, the unshored. Therefore, to the death-longing eyes of such men, who still have left in them some interior compunctions against suicide, does the all-contributed and all-receptive ocean alluringly spread forth his whole plane of unimaginable taking terrors and wonderful new life adventures. And from the hearts of infinite pacifics the thousand mermaids sing to them, Come hither, broken-hearted. Here is another life without the guilt of intermediate death. Here are wonders supernatural without dying for them. Come hither, bury thyself in a life which, to your now equally abhorred and abhorring landed world, is more oblivious than death. Come hither, put up thy gravestone too within the churchyard, and come hither till we marry thee. So it's basically like, you know, a person who goes to sea is like more gone to the people on shore than a person mm -hmm. who's dead. So like, Instead of dying and entering whatever supernatural existence happens there, go to sea, which is its own supernatural existence, yeah. and marry a mermaid. Well, frankly, you know what marrying a mermaid means. Yeah, means drowning. drowning. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's, it's saying this isn't immediate suicide, but it will plunge you into death in life and eventually death in ocean. Yes. It's, it's an intermediary step. You have ventured beyond the bounds of the world in a certain sense i think i really love the imagery of this section of the it's it's grim like i said yeah but the you know um here is another life without the guilt of intermediate death you know bury thyself in a life put yeah. up thy gravestone too within the churchyard it's intense and again it's returning to that very first idea in the entire book i mean okay the first idea in the book is sub-subs but the first idea in ishmael's narrative yeah, and I, I think it's interesting that, like, there's a, there is a certain weird ambiguity here, because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you can go to sea, and then you can actually die there. Yes. So it is this kind of, like, slow suicide. But then, at the same time, there's also this sense that, like, it almost doesn't matter whether you literally die at sea or not, because by going to sea, you have already transitioned into another world. Yeah. And, like, that's what really matters. Yes, oh. you, you have escaped the bounds of this world that you're currently in that is intolerable. Uh, and, God, I also love the last two lines. May I? Yeah. Hearkening to these voices, east and west, by early sunrise and by fall of eve, the blacksmith's soul responded, I, I come. And so Perth went a-wailing. And it's just straightforwardly saying, going wailing is a substitution for suicide that involves going into the unknown and the strange and, like, passing out of knowability yeah yeah uh, anyways so yeah perth um god his whole life is just a huge awful tragedy at this point well the first four acts were fine <laughs> yeah that's... well you don't know what happened for the first 60 years of his life but apparently it was just a a steady climb up the mountain of success i mean you're right yes you're right again it's a tragedy because of the last act yes if if it had stopped there, if the curtain had closed with him having a heart attack in his forge, it wouldn't be a tragedy, it would just be like a Bildungsroman or something. Yeah, yeah, it would just be a, a yeah. Like a, uh. a story of a man who built a, a good family and was taken too soon, but we all, you know, reverence him. And in fact, you know, specifically there's this idea of his every woe unreverenced, his gray head a scorn to flaxen curls, with this idea that where he should have, like, 
respect for old age. He should have, you know, the you know, be lying down to his retirement now. He should be, you know, at the end of his life in a good sense. But instead, his woe is not is regarded as his own fault. His, you know, his gray head does not in any way show him to be wise or correct because he lost everything. Yeah. It's, yeah. I keep saying grim and I'm going to keep saying grim. It's grim. It is. It really is. Ah. <sighs> And we have more Perth. Yes, let's go to the next chapter. Chapter 113, The Forge. Ah. <sighs> because uh, this is where Perth and Ahab talk. Yes, uh, Ahab comes over to the forge carrying a leather bag. A uh, mysterious leather bag. <sighs> and uh, he starts just kind of chatting to the uh, blacksmith in the way that Ahab chats to anyone, which is <laughs> by just kind of like scattering a bunch of metaphors and being like, so what do you think about these? Hmm. Hey, are you prepared for my gnosis? <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, Perth is keeping up with it a little yeah, better than no, the carpenter 100%, 100%. did. Yeah, because so for ex- the, the first exchange here is that Ahab asks Do you want to do this back and forth? Or? Uh, oh, you want to read this? I will happily read this. Okay, all right, yeah, you be Ahab this time. Sure. Are these thy mother carries chickens, Perth? They are always flying in thy wake. Birds of good omen, too, but not to all. Look here, they burn, but thou, thou livest among them without a scorch. And he's referring to, like, the uh, the sparks flying from the forge. Yeah, and he's comparing them to, like, seabirds that follow ships. Stormy petrels. Yes. Because I am scorched all over, Captain Ahab, answered Perth, resting for a moment on his hammer. I am past scorching. Not easily canst thou scorch a scar. Well, well, no more. Thy shrunk voice sounds too calmly, sanely woeful to me. I'm in no paradise myself. I'm impatient of all misery in others that is not mad. Thou shouldst go mad, blacksmith. Say, why dost thou not go mad? How canst thou endure without being mad? Do the heavens yet hate thee that thou canst not go mad? What were thou making there? I know! I know! Okay, 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 let's keep going. No, no, we, we, I would be happy to stop there and talk about it, like, because there's, there's a bunch of stuff here, but Ahab being like, ugh, you're unhappy, but you haven't decided to fight the universe. I know, it's good. I, it's so good. I love Ahab so much. And I love, I love that, that Ahab, I think, just kind of realizes, oh, People can't have any kind of response to this. Let me just move on. And yeah. Perth just lets him. Perth in no way is like, hold on, what were you just saying? He's just like, uh, let us let me respond to your last question. <laughs> I'm welding an old pike head. I, I don't actually want to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do perform this whole I thing. I do but... love this this next bit, though, where um, he's, yes. you know, he's like, look, there are seams and dents in it. And Ab's like, hmm, you can take out seams and dents. Well, I have a seam that is desperately in need of being taken out and Perth says okay I can take out all seams but one the seam in my forehead the one that's caused by all my cares and woes yeah that's the one yeah and and I think you know I think that is kind of like I don't think the blacksmith just means I can I can take out all dents but the dent in Ahab's forehead I think he, he means, means sorrow generally. yeah I I can fix any like problem in equipment except for the problem in the equipment that is a man's brain yeah and you know this idea of, like, you know, Ahab's, you know, if you can, you know, flatten this out, if you can smooth over my troubled brow, I would submit myself to the heaviest hammer of your at your anvil. Like, I would kneel to it. And he says, you know, that's not possible. And there's a very strong sense, I think, that Perth and Ahab, I don't think Perth 
is in the same situation as the carpenter where there's this like incomprehension i think perth understands everything ahab's saying because he too has encountered ruin he too has been destroyed by the world but perth i think a crucial element of this is that perth doesn't really have an external force to blame like he can blame alcohol but that's kind of that's not going to be the same as blaming the white whale he can't say you know the world was created to destroy me without saying that it's like literally you know the entire world is arranged this way he has no enemy to focus on yeah yeah i I don't think abstinence societies let you run around smashing bottles (laughs) anyway so uh you know uh after this exchange about about ahab's forehead uh ahab does get to his point which is that this leather bag he has is full of uh the broken nails from racing horses shoes uh, which I think the idea here being that th- these are like incredibly lucky nails. Like if a if a horseshoe right is supposed to be lucky, okay, yeah, yeah. these are or shards. Apotropaic, at least. Yeah, these are shards of broken off the horseshoes of like the luckiest and there's steel and also there's steel rather than iron. And there's also this idea that it's very good steel because it has to be able to take some incredible uh, hammerings until it gets. You can't have them throwing a, a nail, uh, throwing a shoe during a race so there's this idea you know the blacksmith says uh that why captain ahab thou hast there then the best and stubbornest stuff we blacksmiths ever work and stubbornness is something ahab really really values yes so they're gonna forge this harpoon head from this kind of like specially gathered material yeah because he wants to make an unbeatable harpoon one that a thousand yoke of fiends could not part perth something that will stick in a whale like his own fin bone um and i also love the metaphors ahab just puts out there that perth is just like yes i can do that is these stubs will weld together like glue from the melted bones of murderers yeah do not make human glue and don't make it from murderers like this is like the um he's comparing it basically to like a hand of glory like those weird folk tales about murderers bodies having some powerful cursed potence yeah absolutely um and and uh there's also a lot of specifics about how he wants this harpoon to be built so he wants uh he wants the like um the the shank or or shaft of the harpoon so this is this is like kind of the the metal part of the harpoon head that is like a pole right not the a sharp pole and, part. A, and a spike there's going to be a barb and edge added to it but this is like the the core of it yeah and he wants that to be made out of 12 metal rods that are themselves as like perfect as can be made that are then twisted together as if they were like rope yeah yeah like strands of rope um he specifically compares it to a tow line so part of the apparatus for hunting whales yes um and and uh uh, so Perth makes the 12 rods and Ahab kind of checks them all personally uh, and, and makes Perth redo one of them that he sees as having a flaw. Um, and then Ahab insists on hammering it together himself. Yeah. He will weld his own iron. Um, and uh, so he and Perth are working together. And while they're doing this, Fadala passes by and has some sort of gesture to the fire that uh, the narration cannot understand, just saying it's some blessing or curse. Yeah, and you know what I think is very interesting about this? So Fidala passes by and makes some sort of, you know, he bows his head over the fire, does something. Yeah. But as Ahab looked up, he slid aside. So this is maybe not something that Ahab wants Fidala to do. Or at the very least, 
I don't know. There's some sort of weird tension here where Fadala. Yes. This is not like Ahab and Fadala talked about this, and it was like, okay, I'm gonna make my like incredibly powerful harpoon, and I'm gonna have you make your mystic gesture over it to increase its power. No, there's some kind of tension or mystery here, and Ahab and Fadala's relationship is very different. The book does not give you straight answers with that, really, and it's very strange. And again quite orientalist but it's fascinating yeah I, i'm very there's a chapter coming in this discussion where it, that's gotten into in more detail and i'm very much looking forward to that yeah uh, but yeah there's just yeah. this little moment and, and we really have no idea like what fadala is doing if he is if he is in fact trying to bless ahab in some way that ahab is still like unaware of or doesn't understand or maybe yeah he's trying to undermine him for some reason yeah one thing i can see is the idea that uh, fadala is still religious still believes in some higher and good power that he you know is aiding ahab with some understanding that this is you know in some way correct whereas ahab is set out against a higher power is set out you know with his his ophism his his uh belief in the subtle diabolism his his blasphemy in short mm-hmm. um so it's possible that part of the tension here is that fadala is not serving ahab alone he also he has his religion he has his god that he thinks is involved here and that ahab would perhaps not be entirely comfortable with or you know agree with basically yeah and i do think it's interesting like the question of like what kind of mysticism does fadala have and what kind of credit does ahab give to that has been brought up a little bit like there was that thing with the heads of the whale on either side of the yeah, ship yeah. right and we were told that oh that's like a charm that fadala knows and that's why ahab had this done but like we never really know in specifics like does Fadala actually believe that? Does Ahab believe that because Fadala told him that? Like, yeah, we just don't does, know. And, you know, there is a physical reason why you might do it, which is specifically if you're worried that the ship is going to overbalance from the sperm whale head. Right. So we, yeah. There's a lot of things there. And then also Stubb shows up here to be like, uh, you know, to be racist about Fadala. Yeah, well, <laughs> and and uh, specifically to, uh, by, by, by means of, he, he's comparing... Uh, Fadala to a a bunch of Lucifers, uh, which means, and I think he also means uh, Ahab and the and the. Ah, uh, yeah, you're probably right. Um, yeah, that bunch of Lucifers is probably yeah Fadala, but also Ahab and Perth. But what he means by that is at the same time, obviously a bunch of devils, but yes. also a Lucifer is a friction match. Yes. Um, and, and he's he's also comparing, uh, he's saying that you know Fadala smells like sulfur, the sort of thing he's always been saying. Yeah. Um. Ah, uh, so, you know, as you say, this is very racist. But this is also, like, just kind of saying these these people are, like, in fire, Yes, of they're fire. all very closely. And I think that's really interesting, actually, because something that... Well, this is actually something I should return to at the end of this chapter, but I'm interested in talking a little bit about the Gnostic Demiurge! But specifically, <laughs> you know, the, the place of... We had the carpenter and the very demiurgic and, like, uh, you know, material creation there. And I think there's something a bit different going on with Perth and Ahab here. But there's definitely a lot of Satan. There's a lot of diabolism. There's a lot of Luciferian aspect here that's fascinating in that context. Yeah. Uh, So, speaking of which uh, context, you know, the ire, the... um, steel head is uh tempered in water um and and the steam uh scalds ahab's face uh and and he kind of uh 
Ahab takes that, you know, with a metaphorical meaning. Uh, Wouldst thou brand me, Perth? Have I been but forging my own branding iron then? And it's like, well, yeah, you may in fact be making your own doom here, man. <laughs> yes, and uh, Perth expresses a sort of fear that he's been forging the harpoon for the uh, white whale. Susie says, you know, when Ahab says, have I been forging my own branding iron? Pray God, not that. Yet I fear something, Captain Ahab. Is not this harpoon for the white whale? And I love that little juxtaposition of pray God and the white whale. This idea of like, wait, you're making this for your blasphemous curse mission. Yeah. Like this is this is for that purpose. I think it's also interesting, just going back a little bit to that idea with Mother Carrie's chickens, these birds of good omen, that the way Perth can live among fire without being harmed is that he is already burnt all over, that he has been harmed such that he can no longer be harmed. Whereas Ahab is still capable of quote-unquote branding himself, of wincing at the steam. Of, he is not, in fact, uh, completely immune to burns. Yes. He is not scarred all over the way Perth is. So it's interesting because they've both been hugely destroyed late in life. They both have this young wife, although Ahab's is sort of abandoned rather than dead. They have a lot in common, but Perth is very much sort of, he's accepted, I can only sort of travel closer to death. Whereas Ahab is like, I'm going to kill death. Yes. I'm going to fight God. Yes. Why art thou not mad? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Get angry about it. Yes. And and then, uh, you know, Ahab doesn't engage at all with Perth's fear. He just uh, answers, yes, it's for the white fiend. And then he gives him uh, the next kind of uh, strange material for this harpoon, which is the things for the barbs which are Ahab's own razors, what he's been shaving with this whole time. And uh, Blacksmith doesn't really want to use those. But um, they're high-quality steel. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, he kind of understands what Ahab says in response to that, which is that this is like a bizarre commitment to, like, no longer act like a person. Yeah. Like, a Ahab, you know, the, for a moment the old blacksmith eyed the razors as though he would fain not use them. And then Ahab says, Take them, man, I have no need for them, for I now neither shave, sup, nor pray till... But here, to work. And obviously, I think he means, till I kill the white whale. Yes, and I'm sure he will literally be eating food, but yes, mm, he's... I don't know, people can fast for a long time if they have water. That, you know, fascinating. Let's keep an eye out to see if there's any mention of Ahab eating from this point on. It's entirely possible that he won't. And I do know that... In a later chapter, this I think this episode, Ahab is described as shaggy. So he's not shaving. He is, yes. in fact, growing out his beard. Um, he is, in fact, yeah, abandoning all his, uh, you know, self-care. All his self-care is a weird word there. He's like, but even his hygiene, his grooming, everything that, like, makes him presentable because he is laser-focused on this purpose. And, you know, the blacksmith uses the razors he beats out this like really high quality sharp steel edge to the harpoon an arrowy shape uh welded to the shank and uh as he's about to um like temper them he calls to you know ahab to bring the water cask because ahab has been helping him with this work and ahab says no yeah ahab insists on tempering it in the blood of his harpooners yes <sighs> who are I, just there, I guess, and he calls them. They're somewhere them. on the deck. He calls them, and they're like, he he he's asks if they'll 
bleed for his weapon. Yes. And they're all just like, sure. Like, a cluster of dark nods replied. They're all like, they don't say anything. They just all nod, yes. And then, uh, it's specifically, what say ye pagans? And he wants it of the, quote, true death temper. So he's definitely, like, drawing on this pagan, very unchristian thing. You know, that, that side of the dynamic. Once again, it is Ahab who swings this sort of balance of power to where, you know, like that time he made the uh, the mates act as the squires to the harpooners. Yeah. He's inverting this power up to this amazing thing that he deliriously howls as the malignant iron scorchingly devoured the baptismal blood. Yeah, he says, Ego non baptizo te in nomine patris sed in nomine diaboli, which is, I baptize you not in the name of the father, but in the name of the devil. It rules yes like oh god yes he incredibly metal and it's just ah, uh, like metal enough that i am not un, un i am not sure that i have not heard that like latin incantation at the beginning of a song by some like extremely crunchy metal band <laughs> like yeah. it's and, such and it, a good like yeah thing and so he's He's making clear where he stands in his yeah. particular, uh, you know, war against God. I, I think this entire chapter, this entire process of forging and making this harpoon really is like a kind of satanic ritual. Oh, 100%. And and, and I, I wanted to, by the way, uh, highlight something else about this thing where he, he will not shave, sup, nor pray. Yeah. Where, like, this is swearing not to eat until a certain time is like a a religious it can thing, be yeah. you know like a, like a, there's lots of yeah religious fasting is a thing yeah exactly and and uh so it it, it is like this sort of inversion right where like mm-hmm. ahab is is making this kind of dedication he to... has all the discipline and the personal virtue of these of like meditation of self-denial of, of like de- some of kind dedication. of of some kind of like religious renunciate of like a monk but yeah. you know under norm uh, when a monk does something like doesn't eat for a long time, that's usually in order to do a lot of yeah, praying. Yeah. Uh, whereas for Ahab, it's to do a lot of brooding. Yes. To dedicate himself to his uh, task of slaying the white whale, who may or may not be God. Yes. Um, uh, and yeah, there's also the description of how he, um, you know, takes up the spare poles. He finds one of hickory that still has bark on it, so it's fresh and also kind of wild and he um you know takes the line that he's going to put in this uh, harpoon and uh tests it to see that it is strong enough and we also get sort of a description of just this is the process of making a harpoon presumably normally this would use not cursed objects but as it is yeah how they um they unravel one end of the rope and then kind of reweave it around uh, the the socket of the harpoon. And then, like, you weave it in around the wood that the metal like socket will go over, so that you it's uh, sealed, so that the line is tied tight to the harpoon without any glue or like and, or like even tying a knot. Yeah. So the and then you also tie some knots and stuff, but it's it's all like fitted together, so it's a single object. Yes. Uh, and with this fully assembled harpoon ahab stalks away with it using it as a walking stick uh 
Oh, God, I also love this, you know, pull, iron, and rope. Like, the three fates remained inseparable. So it's, yeah, it's this union of things into a single purpose and a single object. Yes. Uh, and the last thing that happens in the chapter, just before Ahab goes into his cabin with his harpoon, there's an eerie laugh from Pip. Ah. <sighs> All thy strange mummeries not unmeaningly blended with the black tragedy of the melancholy ship and mocked it. Yeah, and I think, you know, on some level, you know, Pip kind of knows the future, knows the fate of the Pequod, and Pip is laughing at Ahab's efforts here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that... I think that there's... Hmm, uh, there's a lot going on. Yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm just saying... In this chapter, Ahab is trying extremely hard to ensure his future success. Yes, he is creating a legendary weapon with which to fight the White Whale. Yes, and I think there is some sense in which, from Pip's perspective, this is all in vain. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I guess I just wanted to push back a little on the Pip has specifically seen the future, because I think that right now it's very up in the air. Yeah, like, I, I don't we, mean... We know how the book ends, generally speaking, but... We know that this is a melancholy tale, a dark tragedy, we are told, and that Pip is sort of mocking it. I just mean that I think that it, I think that that should heighten rather than bath, you know, make pathetic, like make, you know, uh, meaningless or sort of comic, the actual uh, scene. Like, this is very much a creepy horror movie laugh. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. I do not think at the end of this, I'm like, well, why did Ahab do that? That was all pointless. I'm, I'm just <laughs> saying it, it is... Uh, yeah, you know, we, we will see if this avails him. Yes. And, uh, I do want, so I wanted to draw back to the sort of Gnostic stuff going on in yes. this chapter that I find really interesting, which is, Perth is really not a demiurge. He is not, like, mechanical or unthinking or unseeing about the processes of, um, of this, uh, this thing he is you know bathed in fire luciferian but and you know sort of sad and is aware of the world and there's a sense in which uh i think that this sequence is you know sort of occult rather than like it's not that he is the demiurge he's not being figured as a god but he's being figured as someone who is striving with ahab to try and do something that is beyond uh beyond them and it's also always interesting to me. So there's a very there's a thing that I really like in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, which is another giant book that is very distressing at times, um, in all sorts of ways, many of which are also present in Moby Dick, uh, except even the gore, um, although there's a lot more of it in Blood Meridian. The point being, there's a sequence in which there's the imagery of a cold forger, someone who hammers away at like false, uh, falsifying coins and uh, things, but with cold metal, not with uh, not with hot iron. And it's very, very Gnostic in Blood Meridian, which is overall a very, very Gnostic book. And there's this idea that the cold forger is very straightforwardly the demiurge, sort of falsifying the world uh, and hiding things within it. Um, and this idea of the demiurge is a worker, but a worker a, like a worker at the at the forge, but without fire. A cold smith, a you know, a darkened darkened and not illuminated, makes for this really interesting dynamic. When you do have a lit fire and forge, which has its warmth and light and life, but is at the same time infernal and diabolical, because this sets up an interesting dimension where at the same time you can have a demiurge and Satan, and they're not the same person. Mm. And like. 
Ahab here is satanic. He is Luciferian. He is diabolic. But he is set against a blind mechanical god who, you know, sets forth a foe and a world that has a demonism to it. So the question of which of these sides you can, like, see as justified or heroic, and which of these sides you can see as, you know, good, I think that's a really interesting way that the dynamic of the fiery, the fiery and hellish forge versus the demiurge works out. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think it's it's very interesting to put this chapter in a parallel with the the scene of creating Ahab's leg. Yes. Um, it, you know, in some sense, that leg and this harpoon are equally like the tools that Ahab requires to continue in his fight. Yes. Um. So yeah, um, I don't really have anything to add to the analysis you just provided, but yeah, no, I think everything you're talking about is like going on here and yeah. Um. I do also think it's really interesting that like. Why is it the leg that is his enemy, whilst the harpoon is his maybe insufficient friend? Like, this harpoon is 100% an expression of Ahab's will, whereas the leg is, like, an expression of Ahab's frailty. And I think that that is, I think in large part because the harpoon is, like, a thing he is forging to pursue a task, whereas the leg he needs to do anything. Yeah. Like, he is... On some level, he is choosing the harpoon. He brings the ingredients for it. He, you know, he can command its production. Whereas his leg, he's a lot less involved in deciding how the leg ought to operate. And, you know, he managed to uh, be brutally struck by the leg at one point. So, and he keeps breaking it by misuse. And so, and hard use. So I think there's a sense in which, yeah, I think that the leg and the harpoon are kind of are very opposite, even though they are both these necessary mechanical things he has acquired for the purposes of hunting the white whale. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think it's definitely of interest that, like, um, you know, Ahab, like, chooses all the materials for this harpoon mm -hmm. and, like, tests them himself. Uh, whereas, I mean, it does seem like, generally speaking, the idea that Ahab will have a whale ivory leg rather than, like, a wooden one, I do think that's a choice that Ahab made, but mm -hmm. the question of, like, which specific piece of whale ivory is going to be the correct one to use, that's left up to the carpenter. Um, yeah, no, and uh, specifically the carpenter is the one who can decide whether, you know, oh, this one's too soft, this one, you know, this one's just right. And I don't think Ahab has the ability to choose one like this, whereas here he clearly has significantly more practice at the forge yeah yeah I, I can't imagine this is the first time ahab has ever forged anything yes or else i don't think he'd have done that because i don't think he's stupid yeah yeah um yeah god i'm just imagining like you know a kid's drawing that's up on a fridge but it's ahab with a really wonky harpoon where he's like this expresses my will to destroy the white whale and perth is just like looking away and covering his eyes jeez anyways that's not what's happening but i think it's very good to imagine <sighs> Yeah. And then, fascinatingly, the next chapter, 114, the Gilder, is also named after, like, a craftsman. Yeah, that's true. Although this is one of those chapters where the title itself is just sort of an elusive general reference to what the chapter is about. There yeah, is there no... is no human Gilder. Yes, and even, like, the specific concept of gilding is brought up in this chapter, but in a kind of a bleak way. Um, I, I'm not sure I would... We'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll point to where I think it's very, like, straightforward. straightforward. 
later, but... Um, At least, if nothing else, it doesn't come up super early in the chapter. No. So this is one of those chapters where you read the title and you're like, huh, and then you don't get where what it's yeah. getting at. Also, later. I think a gilder is a kind of medieval coin as well. So I had a little bit of trouble. I was like, but we got the doubloon. And then realizing it was the one who gilds was like, yes. oh. Yeah, I think <laughs> gilder as in coin is spelled a little differently. Yeah, I think but, probably. It but on the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised. It's not like medieval spelling was super <laughs> standardized. <laughs> That's so. true. That's anyway, true. um, so uh, at this at this point, uh, as they're getting towards uh, penetrating further and further into the heart of the Japanese cruising ground, uh, they're encountering a lot of whales. Um, and so there's a lot of going out in the boats after whales um, and not a lot of actual whaling success. Uh, but this is not like bad. Yeah. On some level, like being out in a whale boat on a calm ocean under like a pleasant sun is itself like a pleasant experience. Yes. Um, I love some of these descriptions here. So like the, the waves, uh, that like hearthstone cats, they purr against the gunwale. Yes. Like the waves themselves seem like gentle and friendly and, and you The weather's been fine. Yeah, and so you kind of forget that actually the ocean is very dangerous. One forgets the tiger heart that pants beneath it, and would not willingly remember that this velvet paw but conceals a remorseless fang. Yes, there's this idea that like you're just perceiving the surface of the ocean as this like beautiful shining thing. And then uh you know it even says that this is when the uh, traveler starts to feel a certain degree of, like, comfort and, uh, you know, just um, safety on the ocean, as though it were uh, merely a, you know, so much flowery earth. Yeah, it, it basically it's that this, this, uh, this part of ocean is so, like, comforting and feels so safe that it seems as though it's land, as yes. though it's like a verdant valley. Uh, and there's this idea that, uh, this sense of it is like, you know, hills and vales and, you know, rolling blue and it's so pleasant, um, that all this mixes with your most mystic mood so that fact and fancy halfway meeting interpenetrate and form one seamless whole. So this idea that this, this, you know, almost perfumed, quiet, lapping ocean around you fills you with this just general sense of well-being and fancy and beauty. Uh, and in fact, they even touch on Ahab. Yes. Nor did such soothing scenes, however temporary, fail of at least as temporary an effect on Ahab. But if these secret golden keys did seem to open in him his own secret golden treasuries, Yet did his breath upon them prove but tarnishing. So, like, a, a, a pleasant, comforting scene does something to Ahab. Yeah, he, fe he feels its touch, but then his own intensity and monomania flows into it. Yes, and, and, he, and he tarnishes it. Yeah, so it does not remain gold. And also the idea of tarnishing gold is itself something that has come up before. The idea that the doubloon, you know, uh, according to Pip, when the ship is deep, you know, when the Pequod's wreck is found, the doubloon will be untarnished because it's gold. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, what Ahab reflects on seeing this is kind of like the, the, the cycle in life through, I think, what you might call like optimism and doubt and pessimism. Yeah, it's, it's a wild section. It's not given as Ahab. Like, I agree that I think this is Ahab's thoughts. Oh, this is in quotes for me. Oh, okay. That might just be a... My book has some weird differences in, in printing, which is slightly sad because I love the uh, 
love the design of this book. Yeah, I but, mean, there have know. been some points where your book had things in quotes that struck me as obviously being speech, and I was surprised they weren't in quotes, and now this is the exact opposite, so, you know, who knows? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the actual answer is that editing a book this long and that has, like, multiple 19th century editions, or, like, had... 19th century editions and therefore the question of whether the editing was good then and so on is is complicated yeah i'm sure there are like scholarly discussions about yes. whether certain passages from moby dick are intended to be direct speech or not but we don't have to think about that yeah not right in now. any case i think you're i think you're absolutely right that this is very ahab more than ishmael i just thought it was interesting at least in my version that it was flowing into the narrative but i think either way it's clearly ahab's internality yes and 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 what he basically reflects on is that, you know, this feeling of calm and optimism, this is a a part of life, but but then life is also always full of woe. Uh, calms crossed by storms, a storm for every calm. And he talks about this kind of, like, progression through life of, like, increasing, you know, doubt and dissatisfaction, but then... It's something that people, like, go through cyclically over and over again. Yes, he suggests that, you know, there is no steady, unretracing progress in this life. We do not advance through fixed gradations and at the last one pause. So there's not this idea that you just start with, like, naivety and then experience angst and, you know, develop into an adult, which is implied to be a sort of position of, you know, you know, openness and, you know, I think, I think it's meant to be a sort of mature position even if it's not perfectly like uh faithful and happy as you know childhood is but then we don't actually get to stay there it's not a pause at the final thing in various thing in various uh concepts and ideas and experiences you know like this opens up the golden treasures within ahab he returns to childhood briefly he returns to the sense of well-being or connection and then has the tragedy of losing it once again yes and ultimately you know the question is like what what is the conclusion? Like, where are we supposed to end up? Uh, where lies the final harbor whence we unmoor no more? In what rapt ether sails the world of which the weariest will never weary? Where is the foundling's father hidden? Our souls are like those orphans whose unwedded mothers die in bearing them. The secret of our paternity, paternity lies in their grave, and we must there to learn it. So he is basically talking about, like, what is the state of being that is both the place that everyone ends up at, and also, like, our origin point, the foundling's father. Yes. Um, and, and the only way to find out what that is is to die. Yes, and it's also specifically, you know, um, he's saying that there are ever-vernal, endless landscapes in the soul uh, that even though when even though you're in life, like, droughted, droughted and parched and, you know, pained, I think Perth is clearly sort of symbolized here, or at least, you know, uh, connected, as is Ahab. Yet, people can still experience this joy, this, they still have this within them. And so I think there's not just the idea that, like, oh, it's just what's, what is outside of life, but also that we have this in ourselves, this ability to experiencing this serenity, what, you know... Ishmael is constantly referring to his, like, inland uh, valleys of the soul, his, like, you know, secret island. Yeah, yeah. If that exists, where does that come from? Because I think Ahab is pretty clear that it doesn't come from the world we are in. It's something, like, inborn to humanity, and therefore, you know, um, it is, you know, like the, uh, where is the foundling's father hidden? Where is, what is the source of that, 
serenity and beauty in the soul, that appreciation that this world does not create because this world is cruel. So I think that this is incredibly Gnostic. Like, especially the idea of, like, that this is a father and a mother who is dead is the one who, like, had the secret. I think that might literally be referencing Sophia. The, yeah, you know, potentially, the potentially. mother of the world and the, you know, one trapped within it who is not, and, you know, who is the producer of the demiurge who does not know his own, like, origin in sort of classic Gnosticism, uh, classic Christian Gnosticism. Yeah, I think that's a possible illusion here, yeah. Um, I do think that it, uh, when, when... I don't think it's a strong, uh, like, a, an intense illusion. I just think that that's sort of part of what's furnishing the symbolism here. Yes, I do think that, um, I think I maybe slightly disagree with you as to, because mm-hmm. when he, when you were talking about the idea that, like, Ahab is trying to find out what is the origin of, like, a state of, of calm and, and the, you know, the glade in the soul because it can't come from the world. But I think in this moment for Ahab, it is coming from the world. It's coming from the environment that he's in. And so the question he's asking is not so much where does this state of being originate and more like, what is the true state of being? Mm, I, I guess. I just, I think this line about, O ever verny endless landscapes in the soul in ye, the long parched by the dead drought of the earthly life, in ye men yet may roll like young horses in new morning clover, and for some few fleeting moments feel the cool dew of the life immortal on them. And I do agree that this is like a reaction to the external world, but I think what he's saying is that it's, there's something about a person that allows them to still to still enjoy this, to still feel this moment of like peace and calm and flow, despite the fact that their entire life is misery, mm. despite the fact that they have that earthy life has dried up. You know, so basically, I think I guess what I mean is that Ahab still has the capacity to feel this way, despite being monomaniac Ahab is to say that there must be something in him, those secret golden treasures that are referred to. But as he thinks on it, he tarnishes them because he can't take them, he can't just accept them, he can't just live in them, but instead he's sort of like, how can I still feel this way? How can I still accept the world's, like, beauty and respond like this to its, its gilding? Yeah. To, and it's, it's literally golden and shining waters and the surface of the water where you can't see the depths, because of that shining reflection, that gilding, you can't see the darkness underneath. And that's, that's why I think the gilder is such a literal meaning in this thing, that yeah. there is some entity or some force or some quality in the world, the sun, quite literally in this case, that is hiding the depths and of life, the darkness that this book is so concerned with from their eyes and allowing them to briefly exist as though they exist on a surface rather than suspended over an abyss. Yes. And uh, Ahab is also not the only person who is affected by this this sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Starbuck also interacts with it, and and his he also is Starbuck is keenly aware, um, you know, much as Ahab and Ishmael are, that yeah. this sort of golden surface of the water is hiding something deeper. Um, and uh, I'll I'll just read what he yeah, says. Yeah, it's really it's short. Good. Loveliness unfathomable as ever lover saw in his young bride's eye. Tell me not of thy teeth-tiered sharks and thy kidnapping cannibal ways. Let faith oust fact. Let fancy oust memory. I look deep down and do believe. So he is basically saying, like, I want I want to believe in a beautiful world. I mm-hmm. want to believe. I want my faith and my fancy and this gilding to overcome 
the things that I do know are true. Yes. Like, I'm aware that the ocean is deep and it contains sharks and that life is terrible. And that people are drowned and lost over it. He himself has lost family members to whaling and still goes out. So I don't think Starbuck is meant to be... I think it's very easy for me to read this as Starbuck being willfully self-deluding. He's like, I am choosing to believe a thing I know is not true and just believe that this golden surface is the real thing. But I think that's unfair to Starbuck. I think he is genuinely saying that I want to believe that the nature of the world is more like the surface and the beauty and the way that this is, you know, the world is more like this than like that, even though that is there. I want to be able to put aside my knowledge of the depths because that's not really what's happening right now and around me. What's happening is this beautiful surface and this, you know, this easily accessible sense of peace and serenity. And you know, that's that's in opposition to Ahab who sees this beauty and goes, I must understand where this beauty comes from and how it can coexist with those depths. Whereas Starbucks is just like, I am thankful for this beauty, even though I know there are also those depths. Yeah, yeah. And like I don't I don't think it's one hundred percent saying Starbucks getting it right or anything. You know, he is still saying, let faith oust fact, let fancy oust memory. Yeah, and I and I think that in general Starbuck has often been positioned as uh, allowing himself or, or consciously trying to uh, put aside things that he knows are true. Yes. He he is trying, he, he wants to look down deep but see past all of these dark truths that the actual nature of the world is good. Yeah, and, and like I think there was a, I don't remember the exact passage, but I think there was a moment earlier than this where Starbuck was very clearly positioned as like glimpsing some kind of truth and being unable to handle it um, mm, yes I, I think that's true that starbuck starbuck comes close to the abyss and then says the christian and conventional and safe thing to do and the thing that will be best for everyone around me is to abjure this depth i know it exists and i don't need to know more than that yeah he looks down deep and does believe ah <sighs> And then there's Stub. Yeah, finally there's Stub. Uh, and Fish-like, with sparkling scales leaped up in that same golden light. Yeah, and I'm just going to read what Stub says oh, here yeah. again because it's short. I am Stub, and Stub has his history. But here, Stub takes oaths that he has always been jolly. And so he's kind of saying, like, okay, I, quote, have my history, which I think means, you know, I may have had bad experiences yeah, in the yeah, past. I, I come from a world that certainly, from the way he described things with the Zodiac, He's no stranger to knocks and unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh yeah, yeah sure. I, I have like a past. Maybe there's a misfortune there. But right now, right here, I am happy and I have always been. Yeah, and like, I think this is to some extent like Stubbs' thesis statement for his jollity, which is, I take the world as it is and I enjoy it. I, like, unlike Starbuck, who sees past the depths and has to like convince himself not to see, not to look below the gilded surface. Stubb is just entirely happy to exist on the Gilded Surface, and he can do that, and he's dedicated himself to doing that. He finds even terrible danger hilarious. He has handled the world, in a sense, by his jolliness being absolute. Like, he has his history, but he has always been jolly. He is jolly no matter what the conditions that he is, uh, that he is like, um, subjected to. Even yeah. if he's sometimes unhappy, jolliness is, is like, fundamental. He'll take oaths that Stubb has always been jolly. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think it's just fascinating that these, these like, three perspectives being put forward. Four, actually, because 
Ishmael is here too. Yeah, no, Ishmael's definitely. here when he talks about being able to forget in this beauty as your, you know, mystic mood mingles with the uh, surrounding beauty. You can forget that there is still danger there. And he, you know, I think he's the one who, as usual, tries the least to present like a, a moral understanding of it other than just sort of like the psychological understanding. I think in some sense... I mean, obviously they're both written by Melville, but he and Ahab have a similar sense of like, oh, you can still, like, even in darkness, find this beauty, you can still have this experience, and there's something within you that allows it. Uh, but he is much more, Ishmael is much more interested in, like, just saying, this exists, and I care deeply about it, and I seek to cultivate it. Yeah. Whereas Ahab is like, okay, but where does it come from? What hidden paternity allows us this? Yes. God, these are such good chapters. This is this is a fun section. Uh, oh, shall yeah. we uh, go on to the next chapter? Absolutely. Chapter 115, the Pequod meets the Bachelor. Time for another meeting with another ship. And no gam. And, all right, important thing here. This is, quote, some few weeks after Ahab's harpoon had been welded. So I am pretty sure Ahab did not eat for weeks. Uh, I don't think that Ahab would be capable of wielding a harpoon if he's literally not eaten for weeks. What if he's just powered by <laughs> madness? Okay, so you're, you're saying what if the flame within Ahab can drive him like an engine forward to his goal, unstopping, yes. unhesitating, and unfueled? Yes. I think sup might mean sitting down to dinner with his mates. Because that would also mm. fit within, uh, I will not pray, shave, or, like, do the basic social operation mm, of happening. I, I will not be part of any kind of human community. Exactly. I will stand alone and awful and, well, let's see what he does in this chapter. Yeah, I, I am still on the lookout for Ahab consuming any kind of Yeah, food. yeah, we'll see if we, if you know, they just mention that Ahab has, like, you know, a protein shake or something. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to hurt you. Uh, anyway. We'll see uh, if Ahab is mentioned as eating anything. It. It's not as though they've been constantly mentioning Ahab eating things until now. I mean, yes, that's true. Uh, anyhow, so they encounter another ship called the Bachelor, uh, which is just a fantastically lucky Nantucket whaler. Yeah, uh, just... They are, um... They are in party mode. Yes, the whole ship is covered in, like, colorful flags, and the whole ship is bursting to the gills with sperm. Yes, it is the most sperm-filled ship that has appeared in this book or probably ever, to the point that they have put casks in, like, the crow's nests. Yeah, they, they didn't have... have any. They had to go to other ships out on the, like, out on the Pacific and convince them to give them some of their own barrels so yeah. that they can fill them with more sperm because the... In a relatively bad season, The Bachelor has been doing amazingly. Yeah, they've The Bachelor has given away their food to make room for more sperm. They have filled every like bottle and pot in the ship. The uh, cabin table has been broken up for kindling, and they dine off of an oil butt lashed down to the floor for a table. Yeah. In so. the forecastle, the sailors had actually cocked and pitched their chests and filled them. It was humorously added that the cook had clapped a head on his largest boiler and filled it, and the steward had plugged his spare coffee pot and filled it, that the harpooners had headed the sockets of their irons and filled them, that indeed everything was filled with sperm, except the captain's pantaloons pockets, and those he reserved to thrust his hands into, in self-complacent testimony of his entire satisfaction. So yes, Every possible crevice on The Bachelor is filled with sperm. I'd like to take a brief moment to be <laughs> incredibly juvenile about this. 
I I don't think it's unintentional. <laughs> like it's called The Bachelor. The ship is called The Bachelor. <sighs> oh god, are I you saying of... are you saying the ship is young, dumb, and filled with cum? I was thinking that, but I wasn't going to say it on the podcast. <laughs> but yes, one hundred percent this ship is just like incredibly like happy and lucky there's literally a party going on where the crew are all drunk on grog and rum and there's like uh, there's girls there's here? girls who ran away with them from whatever polynesian island presumably because every sailor is going to be a rich man when he gets back to nantucket so there is just literal sex happening too yeah yeah there's there's dancing yeah <laughs> there's drumming they've made the um the tripods into drums yeah yeah using like whale skin as uh as the head of the drum the they have like uh they have like a band hoisted onto into like in a boat like the one boat they've gotten rid of their other whaling boats they have hoisted into like the among the rigging so the band can like play from it and they are uh, chucking the triworks into the ocean because they don't buy need it brick. anymore. Yeah, because they can get buying mason. Basically, there is nothing that is as valuable per volume or weight as sperm. So everything they can get rid of from this boat, besides their physical bodies and sperm, is getting tossed overboard. Yes, it's just absolutely ridiculous amounts of like luxury and enjoyment and success and fortune and uh i think there's also the mention that like um this isn't common for i mean no no this is an extraordinary piece of luck yeah and like other other ships this um yeah while cruising in the same seas numerous other vessels had gone entire months without securing a single fish that's what i meant to get at is that it's not just unusual it's that this has not been a good season for everyone it has been a good season for the bachelor and only the bachelor yes they're they're taking all the whales presumably yeah leaving none Uh, for anyone else yes um so there's some dumb joke about playboys here uh they um and uh you know the the bachelor's captain's like yelling for Ahab and his crew to come aboard and presumably have just, like, the, the greatest game ever. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ahab, of course, as always, only wants to know, hast seen the white whale. Ahab, and- he too was standing on his quarterdeck, shaggy and black, with a stubborn gloom. And, yeah, the ships are just, are being figured as, like, here's the one that is the happiest whale ship ever, and here's the one that is the grimmest whale ship ever. Yeah, one all jubilations for things past, the other all forebodings as to things to come. And uh, the 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 bachelor's captain's response to the question about the white whale is uh, that he doesn't even believe in him. And like, th- I think there's a certain metaphor here where like, this is a ship that has never even heard of suffering. You know, we've heard of suffering and don't believe in it. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, God, I've heard that God is cruel and strikes down the you know most uh, fa- the happiest of men with ruin and terror and refuses to let them die, but. Personally, I don't believe in it because (laughs) I've never felt it, you know, had that happen ever. Like to the point that, and this is just such a grim statement. uh, Someone's like, you know, uh, thou art too damn jolly. Sail on. Hast lost any men? You know, basically Ahab's like, come on. 
you're a whale ship. Something has gone wrong. Someone has paid the price for this joy. And his response is, not enough to speak of. Two islanders, that's all. Oh, no, yeah. They weren't white. Yeah, just like, geez. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, there is a certain sense in which, uh, like... I don't think that the 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 bachelor's merriness is something that this uh, narrative has, like. I don't think we're meant to see them as evil. No, well, they're not evil, but I do think we're meant to see them as kind of foolish. In oh some yeah, sense. like there there's something about it that is at the same time economically reasonable because like yes they're all going to be quite rich they're all going to they're very strongly implied to be making it home we'll see how that goes i don't know if they show up again in the book i can't remember i would imagine not but uh the they're tossing out their triworks but at the same time this is all the precise logic of success because again the sperm is far more valuable than anything else they could have on board they'll be able to buy all sorts of things with the money they get so tossing out their triworks throwing things overboard not caring about that stuff this is just the 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 material results of incredible economic and like you know whale hunting success and so i think that they are foolish but it's like they're foolish, but nothing can touch them because they're so goddamn rich now. Yeah, yeah. Um. God, I love the fact that um, when Ahab's offered, uh, like, um, called aboard, like, come aboard, come aboard, have a gam, his response is not said or shouted or even, like, like uh, rasped. It's gritted. Like, it's going directly through his teeth. Yeah. Hast seen the white whale? Yeah. And, uh, obviously Ahab does not, uh, forbear. Ahab f- refuses to, uh, interact with this ship yeah. beyond this. And they, they sail away from each other, um, with the, the Pequod kind of gazing at the Bachelor with grave, lingering glances, and the Bachelor's men just not paying any attention to that. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't even see. They, like, maybe the captain saw the Pequod and nobody else, because everyone else is too busy partying. And uh, there's this thing where the, the, the bachelor's captain, you know, tells Ahab, I'll soon take that black from thy brow. Like, you know, I'm really rich. We're having a great party. I can definitely make you forget the trauma that has completely consumed you as a human being and turned you into an instrument of soul vengeance upon God. You just need to have some drinks with me because I'm happy. Yeah. Like, yeah, no. No, that's this, not going to happen. This is, genuinely, this is very annoying. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but at the same time... The Pequod's like the Pequod's crew is like, but we wanted to go to the party. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, then the last moment of this chapter is this kind of uh, cryptic thing where Ahab is also watching the other craft sail off, and he takes out a little vial of sand from his pocket and seems to like compare it to the ship, uh, and the the vial is filled with Nantucket sand. Yeah, soundings from Nantucket, so it's like from the. Um... From the process of sounding, which is measuring yeah, yeah. the depth of the water. You drop down a weight to the very bottom. There's a there's a classic claim that uh, New England um, sailors make, which I, I have via my family, that if you're sufficiently good at sounding, um, you can drop the line, and from the mud that gets on the like lead weight that hits the bottom, you can taste it and tell where in your like area you are. The, this is obviously kind of ridiculous. Um, there's some great jokes about it. Uh, but it's it's very, you know, sounding a line and getting some mud up from the bottom and that having meaning is, is interesting to me. Mm. And so it's not just that it's, like, sand from Nantucket's beach. It's sand from, like, 
off Nantucket's shore where you sound out the um sound out the uh the bay it's like the it's very lured it's very much like this is if you return home to your home port this is where you get those soundings yes, yes. and it's very much him i think looking at the ship and being like ah oh, they're homeward bound that's what it means to be homeward bound full of riches all you know that's the thing you can do if you give up on your quest to hunt the white whale yes and so that's what that sounding means to him Oh. Let's uh let's do the next chapter. Yeah. Chapter 116, The Dying Whale. Um so apparently uh passing by the bachelor, uh the good luck rubbed off on the pequod. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Ishmael implies that this is uh this is normal like when you when you go past someone who's been getting lots of the winds of fortunes even with your own sails a droop, you'll get a little bit of a a, a you know, a bluff a, bluff, a blush of wind. Yeah. And so uh the pequod uh, kills four whales the next day. Uh, yep, for next day after encountering the gay bachelor, whales were seen and four were slain, and one of them by Ahab. Yeah. I just really like the way that, that sentence works out. Yeah, and this is, uh, it's late in the afternoon and the, uh, uh, Ahab is out, like, at, at the end of the, the fight with the whale, it's, um... God, this it's description of the fight is so good. Yes. When all the spearings of the crimson fight were done, and floating in the lovely sunset sea and sky, sun and whale both stilly died together. Yeah. You know me, I I, I pop for solar imagery. Yeah, yeah. And and this is a like um you know, this is kind of like a beautiful, comforting, even like holy scene. Uh he he suggests that it's almost as though like a a breeze has come from, uh, a, a breeze freighted with these Vesper hymns has come from the Philippines. Um, so. Uh, specifically the idea that the Spanish land breeze wantonly turned sailor had gone to sea and carried it there. I just really like the idea of like a, a wind that's normally landlocked and travels over the land being like, I want to go sailing. Can winds get suicidal? <laughs> oh, God. Well, that's what we've just been told, like, a couple, uh... I mean, I guess wantonly going sailing is mu- is very different from determinedly and self-destructively going sailing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, anyhow, so... so... just recently what was up. Yeah, no, look, you're right, but... <laughs> so Ahab is, uh, in his boat watching the whale die. Um, and, uh, apparently something that happens when a whale is dying is that its, its head turns upwards towards the sun. Um, and, uh... God, this is another good model. There's just so many good Ahab lines in these sections. Yeah, and, and this, 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 you know, thing that whales do, f- for seeing it again, something Ahab has no doubt seen, like, countless times before, um, it, it prompts these reflections in him in this kind of sunset atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, he sees the whale as, like, doing homage to the sun, yeah, it's it's got a really cool uh, line here. He turns and turns him to it. How slowly, but how steadfastly his homage, rendering and invoking brow with his last dying motions. He too worships fire, most faithful, broad, baronial vassal of the sun. Yeah, so this is again that sort of sun worship, fire worship idea coming up. Um, Life dies sunward, full of faith. But see... No sooner dead than death whirls round the corpse and it heads some other way. So, like, the basically the body of the whale as the whale expires turns away from the sun, and Ahab finds this very meaningful that, you know, there is this, like, 
you know, draw that all life, even life that is far from human history or human tradition, it feels that draws things upward to the sun in this, like, according to some unknown and ancient truth, death still turns you away from it. Yeah, and, and I think that, I think that this, these last few passages of this chapter suggest a kind of, like, dualistic worldview in Ahab. Yeah, I like think a, so. A, a, so he talks about... This is, and, you know... Yeah, there's some there's some weird things yeah, here. Yeah, he refers to... Orientalism. Refers to, thou dark Hindu half of nature. And I, I really don't know what Hindu is doing here, other than just literal, like, darkness, dark so skin. So it could also be specifically referencing uh, Hindu religious iconography around Shiva. And mm. specifically, there's a number of Hindu religious, you know, uh, like, artistic and iconographic elements that were very interesting to you know western uh scholars and people interested in religion as like oh this is full of like death and grimness this is you know bones and wildness and obviously there's a lot of racism and orientalism going into how that worked but it results in this idea of you know um i mean shiva is the god who you know meditates in the cremation grounds and that has a whole wild and wide set of meanings within a different religious uh, tradition when you're just absorbing the art through like a primer on hinduism that's mostly about depicting these sort of things as like strange you know imagery i could see how you could potentially associate hindu religious iconography again in a very in a kind of shallow and definitely not a little bit racist way um like just with death with death with nature with like with wildness and the dark side of nature, because those are things that show up in Shaivist iconography that are, like, about, you know, um, the undifferentiated oneness, about, like, the world being complicated and full of a dark and a light side that, you know, uh, Shiva's god over both and manages to unify and make understandable. But here, because that's the side that seems to come forward, it's being used to frame this negative side. Or yeah. this... I mean, negative isn't quite the word. It's just, it's dark and natural and... Uh, I would say maybe chthonic. Chthonic is a perfect word for it. It's amoral in a very deep way. Yeah, like I think in some ways the, the worldview that Ahab is presenting here is one in which there is like this sort of dark death-associated force that is the ocean. And there is the life-associated force that is the sun. But that is not like... The sun itself is, you know, it is fire. It it gives life, but it 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 call uh, that only calls forth life, but gives it not again. So yes, it is. It is not a a uh, a Christian day. Yeah, it does not promise resurrection, and so there is just sort of there is a force of life and a force of death, and they both exist and are like sort of divine or or, or infinite. Yes, powers, and, and I think that. I mean, again, I keep bringing this Gnosticism here, and I don't think Ahab is straightforwardly Gnostic in this moment, but this idea of, like, there is a dark and secret sea that, you know, uh, has little concern for life and is the sort of driving force within life, and you also, you know, you emanate from this source of life in the sun, this idea that the, you know, the soul is thrown into a world that is ruled by powers that are not life-generating or life-restoring. Um, I think it's... I think this is mostly and most of all about sort of this natural world and this image of the natural world as kind of amoral, unrestoring, and to some extent unconcerned with what is created survival. Yeah. 
Um, and I think there's a certain sense of in which, like, the whale is, like, the most sort of powerful entity. And it, like, turns toward the sun, but the sun can't stop it from dying. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, yet dost thou, darker half, rock me with a prouder, if a darker faith. And we will, look, we're getting close to the candles, and, oh my god, I'm just going to be unsufferable, insufferable with the candles. I just nice. want to let you know. Well, I be... look forward to that, whatever the hell that is. Yeah, so, yes, this, you know, all thy unnameable minglings float beneath me here. I am buoyed by breaths of once living things, exhaled as air, but water now. So, like, the ocean is death, and the chthonic half of the world, the darkness, the... The thing that the sun gilded over but could not actually hide from Ahab. Yeah, and I think it's also very interesting, this this last bit, where he yes. says, he describes himself as, Born of earth yet suckled by the sea, though hill and valley mothered me, ye billows are my foster brothers. And this is actually something that Ishmael said about himself. Like, on seeing oh, the Pacific, yes, he was he like... adopted by it. Exactly, but... but for for Ishmael, it's like he is adopted by, like, the beauty and the kind of pleasantness but, of the but Pacific. At, at the same but... time, he explicitly says that it's full of, like, the dead and the, we, the, the dreams of the dead and the strange interminglings, which is exactly what Ahab just said. I am buoyed by breaths of once living things, exhaled as air but water now. So they both see very similar things in the ocean but interpret them in the one case into like serenity and uneasy dreams and fancies and in the other case into death and like the churning chthonic shadows deep beneath it yeah but fundamentally they are both like adopted sons of the pacific ocean and they both see in it the grave of everything also, then hail, forever hail, O sea, in whose eternal tossings the wild fowl finds his only rest. This idea that, like, this is, I think, honest, is what uh, Ahab is saying, or at least that's how I read it, that this is like, you know, there are wild tossings, but this is the nature of the world. We can't, you know, keep once parted from the sun, uh, once emanated, once dropped into this world. It is foolishness to pretend that we are not, you know within this. Your only rest can be upon this surface. I may be overreading that, to be clear. I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's present, and... <sighs> yeah. So, yeah. Also, there's this line, O trebly hooped and welded hip of power, O high aspiring rainbow jet, that one strivest, this one jettest all in vain. I think... I think he's referring to, like, the whale's strength there. Yeah, I, th I think it's that the whale's hip is trying to turn it towards the sun, mm. and the jet is trying to reach toward the sun. But it never can. Yes, exactly. Okay, that makes sense to me. That, that was something that I was honestly uncertain of the meaning of the symbolism and the, the, the straightforward meaning of the text there. And I'm very, I'm very glad to... I'm very glad you were just like, oh yeah, no, I know what that is. <laughs> um... <sighs> All right, shall we uh, go on to the Whale Watch? Sure. Uh, and this is uh, basically this: uh, all the whales that are killed on this day are kind of far apart from each other. And this one in particular that Ahab is on, uh, the ship is not able to make it to this whale to, like, you know, start. Yeah, it's far to windward, which means he, he went the furthest and the hardest from the Pequod with his boat. 
but because it's far to windward, the Pequod can't tack all the way up there before the sun sets. And so uh, his he and his crew are left sitting in the boat overnight by the whale. Yes. Uh, and... Uh... I love, again, that there's this, um, there's a, a reflection of the, you know, uh, whales were seen and four were slain, and one of them by Ahab, and later, you know, and the boat that had killed it lay by its side all night, and that boat was Ahab's. Yeah, yeah, that structuring Ahab as the last word in the paragraph is definitely pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so Ahab and his crew spend all night by the, by the boat, lit by a lantern hanging from the waif pole, um, and, uh, they all sleep except Fidala. Fidala doesn't sleep. He just sits up and watches the sharks. Uh, There's also this amazing sentence. A sound like the moaning in squadrons over asphaltites of unforgiven ghosts of Gomorrah ran shuddering through the air. Yeah, and asphaltites, or asphaltites maybe, mm. is the, uh, it's, it's a Greek word for the Dead Sea. Ah. Uh, so that's why the unforgiven ghosts of Gomorrah are there. Um. Hmm. So yeah, there's some kind of moaning sound happening in the air, and we have really no idea what that is. Uh, I mean, I assume that that's... So my thought is that's probably just the boat, like, shuddering in the wind. Because boats make all sorts of weird moaning and, and like, rasping noises just from the motion of water and wind. I mean, yeah, that's probably true. But it could but... also just be creepy. Yeah, it could be <laughs> unforgiven ghosts. You know, I, I guess technically I can't say no. Uh, and then suddenly Ahab wakes up. And, uh, uh... He's had a dream. Yeah, And yeah. it's a dream that he's had before, and that apparently Fidala interprets for him. Yeah, so they have this sort of back and forth, which is very, like, it's Ahab talking about his dream, and Fidala talking to him about his interpretation of it, and about, like, basically prophecies Fidala yes. has previously said to Ahab. And Ahab kind of questioning those prophecies, and Fidala reminding him of things he said, and then also finally adding a little bit more to it um, yes so and what i love about this is that we're like coming part way through the like you know i think of macbeth and the witches or like you know um anything from uh greek tragedy but instead of having seen from the start the prophecies and statements we got some prophecies early on but they were completely disconnected from the entire rest of the story uh with the the sailor at the yes. port but fidala has apparently been in talks with Ahab about these dreams, these interpretations the entire time, and we're only getting to see them now, almost at the very end, and only sort of uh, sketchily, because they yeah. they have both spoken of this much before, so we get only the outlines of their conversations and what Fadala has actually said and what Ahab has dreamed. Yeah, we don't hear really anything about Ahab's dream. He just says, I have dreamed it again, and uh, Fadala says, of the hearses. So if Ahab is having a dream of hearses, but we don't know anything other than that. Yeah. Um, and, and what Fadala tells him is that neither hearse nor coffin can be thine, which there is a very obvious interpretation yeah, there, yeah. which Ahab proposes, which is that, well, yes, if you die on the sea, you won't have a hearse yeah, or a yeah. coffin. I like how he phrases it. And who are hearsed that die on the sea? Because I had never run into hearsed as a verb before. Yeah, yeah. I, I just like it. Uh, and, uh, you know, this goes on to a further something, again, Fidala has said before, which is that before it will be possible for Ahab to die on this valid, on this voyage, two hearses must verily be seen by thee on the sea, the first not made by mortal hands, and the visible wood of the last one must be grown in America. I gotta say, I feel like that could have had a better cadence to it. 
I suppose. But, but... <laughs> I, I, I just, the phrase, the visible wood of the last one must be grown in America is just, I don't know, maybe it maybe it had a better cadence back when it was written, but I always feel slightly disappointed by the end of that sentence. I suppose. Uh, but the whole section is great. I just wanted to point that, you know, normally we're very positive about this book for good reason. I just wanted to point out that I don't like that sentence. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't feel like I really understand what your objection is, but it sort of sounds like all you're saying is that you don't think it's mellifluous. Yeah, I think that its cadence is a bit weird, and I think it sounds kind of stilted in a way that it sounds differently stilted from how Fadala normally speaks. And it sounds like, honestly, it sounds like he's trying to like, you know, it's not just, you know, and the second one must be made of American wood. It's the visible wood must have been grown in America. Well, it may be that part of the reason for the weird phrasing here has something to do with the specifics of what this prophecy refers to. Because mm. I, I will certainly be on the lookout for anything that Ahab might see that could be reasonably understood to be a hearse at this point. Very fair. Uh, which, you know. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, this does kind of reassure Ahab because he, he does say, you know, such a sight we shall not soon see. Um, to which Fidala has the response, believe it or not, thou canst not die till it be seen, old man. Which I feel like is a very, like, in context, Ahab is interpreting this as, like, Fidala assuring him that he can't die. But I think there is also a sense of, like, I know what your death is, old man. Yeah, like, I, I'm i telling you this is how it's going to work, and you. Sh I think on some level it's the sort of the Pythian Oracle kind of thing where it's like, this is what's going to happen. You, you know, you don't believe that you're going to die. You think I'm just telling you you're immortal. I am giving you the way that you will die, and you should, you know, beware that. Yes. You should, you should take this seriously, even if it seems impossible. Yes, and then uh, a further prophecy, again, something Fadala has said before, is that uh, that Fadala will go before Ahab, I shall still go before thee, thy pilot. Uh, so in some way, Fadala is going to die first and guide Ahab into death. But thou must, and but then ere I can follow, thou must still appear to me to pilot me still. So Fadala must go before him and then also return to pilot him. Yes, like one interpretation of this could be Fadala is going to die and then Fadala's ghost is going to guide Ahab into death. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, but, but Ahab is continuing to interpret this as insistences that he is not going to die. Uh, well then, did I believe all you say, O oh my pilot? I have here two pledges that I shall yet slay Moby Dick and survive it. Uh, and to which Fadala does not confirm or deny, but what he says is, take another pledge, old man. And as his li eyes lighted up like fireflies in the gloom, which I'm assuming means that they, like, caught the light for a second, but it's also just... I would not put it past him just to have glowing eyes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we can be certain whether he's meant to literally be glowing or not, but I think that's definitely a possibility. Hemp and, only can kill thee. And and Ahab, this is, I think is the point where Ahab is most clearly ignoring obvious implications because Ahab says, the gallows, you mean. I am immortal then on land and on sea. Uh, Ahab, I guess, is really sure he will never be executed for any crime. Uh, but I think it is obvious that a, a whaleman could be killed by a, a line by a, a like a ship's rope those are made of hemp yes 
Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm... Yeah, no, no. I'm, it's just, I think that the thing that's happening here is killed by hemp is often used to mean death by hanging. And so I think that's part of what's going on is that Ahab is interpreting it not literally, but in the, the connotative meaning of the arrow, which yes. is, you know, um, death by hemp is very, is just, is a way of saying you're going to get hanged. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I'm just yeah, saying, yeah. I think that, I think it is much more likely that Ahab, if he dies in this narrative, will be killed by, like, being dragged down by a rope in some way. I'm not commenting at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I know you know what actually happens. Um, I am also definitely thinking right now about what happened to uh, Captain Boomer, where he got a harpoon in the white whale and had, or rather, no, there was a harpoon in him and a harpoon in the white whale, and they were tied together. Yes, yes. And the thing that was really going to kill him was being dragged down into the ocean. Yes. Um, And it was only, you know, that upsetting thing that happened where he ended up loose from it that allowed him to survive um yes. so i'm just saying that's all in my mind right now i know you can't say anything to me and i'm not expecting you to but yeah no i i think these are all uh they're definitely all like good things to think about yeah um, uh, and then you know the two of them were silent i love this little description both were silent again as one man like, they, they have a shared silence. Yeah. It's as silent as if there were one person being silent. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, the morning comes and they, they bring the whale back to the ship and... We move on. Yeah. Final chapter of today, chapter 18, the quadrant. 118. 118, yeah, sorry. Um, and, uh... Oh, God, the opening. The season on the line at length drew near. Yes. And uh, every time Ahab comes on deck, everyone is like looking alive and, like, ready for the command for them to sail for the equator. Um, and everyone's looking at the doubloon. Because yes. everyone sees it as, like, the sign of the oath and the sign of, you know, what they stand to win by helping him take the white whale. Yes, and uh, eventually the order does come, and we're going to hear about the contact, the things that happen immediately before that. Uh, Ahab is taking his latitude, as is his usual want. Um... And uh, he's doing so in his um, because remember Ahab likes to sit in the boat that is like rigged up for his leg. Yes. So he's like hanging off of a crane basically in this boat, taking the latitude from that position. Yes. And and we should maybe talk. I want to talk a little bit about taking the latitude. What it means Mm, to take the latitude, the tool that he's using to do it, the quadrant, the title of this of the chapter. Um. So do you want to talk a little bit about latitude and, like, what that means and how one measures that at sea? Uh, so the important part is that um, you can determine... Uh, shoot, I always get longitude and latitude mixed so up. So latitude but... is definitely the, the horizontal. What am I saying? Latitude is... is uh, North-south? Yeah, how, how, how close... Yes, latitude is where you are on the north-south axis. Yes, and then longitude is where you are east to west. And historically determining one is possible with a with a handheld tool whereas the other one it isn't because as you move around the planet the um uh you know the sun sets and rises at different times so it's very yeah. it is very hard to determine longitude, longitude. yeah longitude it is the longitude problem the, not the latitude problem longitude is the one that gets solved when you have good clocks yes because you can basically by knowing when the sun is supposed to rise and set you can determine longitude with a very good clock but devising a device to do it before you had good clocks you could take on ships and they wouldn't wind down or lose time or get or you know just be too big or whatever 
that was a big deal. But latitude you can determine by comparing the angle of the sun at noon to directly overhead based on the time of year you're in. And so, so I I think that the the quadrants yeah. that were t- that I think a quadrant actually usually compares the position of the sun to the horizon, mm. not to the not to directly overhead. Well, it's effectively the same. Well, I, I know it's just sure, sure. You, I no, think you're the, right. yes. the details of how the measurement is taken are somewhat relevant. The point is that it's showing how far off the sun is from directly overhead shows how far away from the equator you are. Because if you're on the equator, the sun is directly overhead at noon. Whereas if you are in various other positions, when the sun is at its highest zenith, it's you know its noontime location it will be, still be a smaller degree of angle from the horizon than 90, which is also, you know, a greater degree of angle than zero from Yeah, so, from like, if, yeah. if you are, like, very far north or south, the sun is relatively close to the horizon, even when it's yeah, at its highest Yeah, all through point. the day, and this is also why you get very long summer days as it just sort of hovers along the horizon and long winter nights as it's not there. Yes, um, and, uh... Or, uh, no, no, it's a long summer day. It's going to be still pretty high above the horizon. It just stays up there. Anyways. Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and something I was trying to look into and, and couldn't completely figure out is what Ahab's tool actually is. Because it is mm-hmm. described as a quadrant. And, okay, so you may have heard, I think the one, the word for this type of instrument that people are probably most familiar with is a sextant. Um, but there is also such a thing as a quadrant and an octant. And all of these are tools that allow you to measure the angle of the sun or, you know, other, like you could also do it with a star, for example. Yeah, they're very, they're to some extent similar to like a protractor you might have used in high school. Yeah, anyway, they measure the angle of the sun to the horizon and the, the, the meaning of the word quadrant refers to the fact that the, the object itself, like the shape of a quadrant, is basically a right-angled section of a circle. So a quarter of a circle. Exactly. A quadrant. Yes. Um, uh, people who are familiar with Homestuck may know what a quadrant is. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so so a quadrant... I'm not going to ask about that, but I'm really curious now. There's just a point in... Okay, first of all, quadrants, the romance quadrants with the trolls are a thing in Homestuck. Oh, right, that whole thing. And then also there's a point in Homestuck where somebody is like, well, obviously there's going to be four quadrants, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that that all tracks. Anyways, moving on. Yeah, so, a quadrant, one quarter of a circle, a sextant, one sixth of a circle, an octant, one eighth of a circle. Um, and <sighs> an octant is also, or at least some kinds of octant. Uh, let me just... Some kinds of octant are also sometimes known as a... Uh, reflecting quadrant i think is the term yes yeah because uh an octant that has like a a um an 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 octant uh uses mirrors to double the angle that it can potentially measure so that the instrument itself is only shaped like an eighth of a circle but it can be used due to the way it uses mirrors to measure the full 90 degrees um Thus, an octant or reflecting quadrant is something of a scientific advance from a quadrant. Like, a quadrant is... It's more compact, but more, more, like, elaborate. Yeah, and I think it's also potentially more precise. Mm -hmm. Um, And and basically, a quadrant is, like, actually a pretty simple structure. Um, You can build 
you can build all kinds of things that are technically quadrants that are, are measuring the angle of, uh, you know, the sun. I also see over your shoulder on Wikipedia that quadrants also refers to the fact that early versions of the instruments were derived from astrolabes, and an astrolabe is a full circle. So to some extent, it sounds like the earliest, or at least some of the early quadrants, were basically just made by removing a quarter of an astrolabe to do a single specific kind of astronomical observation of the sun yes exactly and and that's and... that's really cool actually i really like that because i was i was wondering well some of the designs that i've seen for this device are like a 180 degree thing or like have a larger than uh quadrant size what do you call those and the answer is half an astrolabe <laughs> yes and yeah so i i think that uh what what ishmael has is probably oh, sorry what ahab we has. keep doing that yeah yeah um, I think that what Ahab has is probably, in fact, an octant or a reflecting quadrant. And mm. part of the reason for that is that I think that by the time this book was published, a straight-up quadrant was basically obsolete. Like, Isaac Newton invented a reflecting quadrant around 1699. And I think that uh, they became, like... The versions of this basic concept of a reflecting quadrant became like a functional tool that was actually used by sailors uh, sometime during the 1700s. Um, and uh, I think part of the reason that a reflecting quadrant is of value is that it allows you to... Um, I mean, it, as I said, I think it can be more precise. And I think you can also potentially... Uh, the way that you with, with a with a quadrant um mm -hmm. that doesn't have any kind of lenses or mirrors or anything you have to kind of um you can't just look directly at the sun yeah to do it so you have you, to sight along it to the sun and that's kind of awkward and weird yeah and and uh so there there's a there's a one of the types of quadrant is called a backstaff and the reason it's called that is that you measure the altitude of the sun by a shadow. So you have your back to the sun, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but what Ahab is doing, obviously, is basically well, looking directly at the sun. Let's get the description of it, because it says that specifically his quadrant was furnished with colored glasses through which to take sight of that solar fire. So he's got like a sunglasses lens kind of thing so that he can directly... And you see this also on, in I think, a lot of like images of historical like use of the sextant often have people looking up at the sun or sighting to the horizon and moving something that will like catch the sun with a mirror when it's correctly aligned. So if you've ever seen those like weird little machinery things that people have that take, you know, a section of a circle, usually a sixth, um and are like you know adjusting it and often this is like a captain or a napoleonic commander or something that's a uh that's using a sextant to sight the horizon and the sun take the measurements to get the latitude yes yes uh yeah oh i should mention as i was talking about like uh, advantages of uh technological advances in the octant uh, there's also apparently one major advantage of it is that uh it's easier to align um, something about, I think, the fact that it is, like, reflecting the light from the object. Um, I, I don't fully understand the technical details here, but it, it, your, your view of the horizon and the light from the object that you're reflecting move together. Mm -hmm. Um, so... Cool. It, it's uh yeah now of course that's not relevant here because no no uh, the, we just the got, ship is not really moving at the moment we just but. got really into uh description of sextants and octants and wanted to share them uh 
So yes, it's um, described as that Japanese sea, so it's somewhere off Japan, and it's, uh, you know, bright and vivid. There's no, uh, there's no um, clouds, or what clouds there are, are, nope, no clouds, my bad. Uh, and there's a description that's very like, ah, you are referencing common ideas about Japan at the time. The sky looks lacquered, specifically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this nakedness of unrelieved radiance is as the insufferable splendors of God's throne. And, of course, Ahab looks at God's throne with a special device to shield himself from it so that he can stare at it. After all, he'd strike the sun if it insulted him. Yes, yes. Uh, and while Ahab is looking through his quadrant, note, reflecting quadrant, octant, uh, <laughs> at the sun and trying to like measure its angle. Fidala is also looking at the sun, just straight up looking at the sun. I mean, he's 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 half uh, closing his eyes, but he is just looking up. Um, and uh, he is, I guess, expressionless. His yeah. his wild face was subdued to an earthly passionlessness. Yeah, I think he just looks like blank or expression or like absorbed. Yes, um, and, uh, so Ahab takes the measurement that he wants, and, uh, he marks it down in pencil on his ivory leg, which we, that, that was kind of alluded to earlier in the leg chapter, like, and here's earlier what, as well, that he has, like, a slate section, color, like, flattened out on the leg. Somehow I had forgotten that, but, uh. Yeah, yeah, it's come up a few times when his leg is discussed, but it was very early when we first got a description of Ahab. Yeah. Um, and, uh. Having calculated the latitude, Ahab enters, like, a, a reverie, um, because he realizes, you know, he, he speaks up to the sun, and, and uh, speaks of how, like, the sun, thou sea mark, thou high and mighty pilot, thou tellest me truly where I am, but canst thou cast the least hint where I shall be, or canst thou tell where some other thing besides me is this moment living, where is Moby Dick? This instant thou must be eyeing him. These eyes of mine look into the very eye that is even now beholding him. I, and into the eye that is even now equally beholding the objects on the unknown thither side of thee, thou son. So, uh, there are two ways that I feel like I could gloss this passage. Mm -hmm. One is that he believes that the sun is like a 360 degree eye. And so the sun is seeing everything on the earth, but is also seeing everything that is like on the far side of the sun. Which... You know, yeah, I think that's straightforwardly. I the uh, I I also wondered whether he might be thinking of an eye that is like behind the sun, like beyond like the sun, like that they're like he's looking through the sun to something else. I think he's saying that the sun sees everything on Earth. Like the sun is an all is is you know the the eye of providence kind of image, the all seeing thing, and it sees both Earth and, like, unknown mysteries on the far side of the sun that no one else can see, and all of that is hidden from Ahab. And he, he becomes enraged by this at his quadrant, that he, call, he calls it a foolish toy, baby's plaything of haughty admirals and commodores and captains. The world brags of thee, of thy cunning and might. But what, after all, canst thou do but tell the poor pitiful point where thou thyself happenest to be on this wide planet, and the hand that holds thee? No, not one jot more. Thou canst not tell where one drop of water or one grain of sand will be tomorrow noon. And yet with thy impotence thou insultest the sun. Science! 
Curse thee, thou vain toy, and cursed be all the things that cast man's eyes aloft to that heaven, whose live vividness but scorches him, as these old eyes are even now scorched with thy light, O sun. Level by nature to this earth's horizon are the glances of man's eyes, not shot from the crown of his head, as if God had meant him to gaze on his firmament. Curse thee, thou quadrant. And uh, he throws the quadrant to the deck and declares that he is only going to guide himself by the compass and by dead reckoning. By log and by line. And he stomps on the quadrant and destroys it. He gives up on measuring latitude. Yeah, he, um, I really like this because it's like, basically it's, oh, this is very useful for determining what is and like establishing your place within the, you know, the physical material world. But all deeper and more meaningful things are hidden and we, we look up to like a divine radiance and all it does is blinds us. no. We should, you know, science is fundamentally giving us nothing of value, or at least nothing of value to Ahab, which, you know, I don't think Ishmael entirely disagrees. Um, you know, science, foolish toy, yeah, yeah. and, like, literally jumping up and down on a, uh, you know, on a piece of scientific equipment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and I think it's very interesting how there's this kind of move where, like, in the par- in the speech that I read, Ishmael yeah. is, or, jeez. Oh, Ahab is angry at the sun for not telling him where Moby Dick is or where anything will be in the future. But then he kind of looks at the quadrant and realizes, no, the sun does know that. The problem is that the tool I have will not allow me to access that knowledge. Yes. And there's this sort of sense of like, that he has an antagonism to the sun. And, you know, this is established from the very beginning with, uh, I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Mm-hmm. And could the, the one do that, then could I do the other? That, you know, there's a sort of justice and equality that uh, exists within these things. And I think that to some extent he's expressing his his frustration at the impotence of the object, that it insults the sun, as he puts it, because it does not actually... It uses the sun as a way of just marking your own location on the world when that is something you should be able to do from like line and log by dead reckoning by your own position and the sun is this like high divine thing that you should have a much more weird and complicated relationship to yeah like science simplifies things it turns everything into marks for physical location and place when the sun should mean this like all-encompassing brilliance and divine knowledge that is like beyond that so it's i don't think it's that ahab is saying you shouldn't stare up into the sun or even confront it or strike it it's that he's saying that by treating it as a this purely you know mechanical scientific object of study you convince yourself you have knowledge of something you don't know at all yes and i think it's very interesting that that he says that uh you know um uh he says this thing about how how men's eyes are are pointed out like levelly they're not at the top of the head as if meant to gaze at the firmament so he's kind of saying man was not meant to look at the sun yeah um and and he says he will conduct himself by by the level ship's compass and the level dead reckoning so he's kind of it sounds a little bit like he is giving up on staring at the sun but at the same time as you say i think ahab is very willing to like confront the sun and then also I'm reminded of his little speech to the carpenter about the idea of, like, building a new man. Because he proposed that that Giving man... Giving it a skylight. Yeah. He pro- yeah. I think what's going on here is not... Is subtly that he is not just saying, oh, God didn't meet... You know, if man were meant to fly, he'd have been built with wings kind of thing. No, it's... 
God did not have did not create us with like eyes upward to see the firmament and so on. God created us in some way feeble or weak, and we shall overcome that. We shall not like we cannot defeat that or overcome it by attempting to replicate it in this like paltry way. His his line, you know, thus I trampled on thee, thou paltry thing that feebly pointest on high. Thus I split and destroy thee. Yeah, it's not that Ahab doesn't want to stare directly at the sun, it's that he wants to do that in a way that he feels like truly expresses his power. He yes. doesn't want to do it with this pathetic instrument that the only thing it can really do is tell, tell you him where you are. Exactly. Yeah, it's Ahab feels insulted by his own body and the material world around him, by the limitations put in man by God in the way he phrases it. And so he thinks it's doubly insulting to that man science claims to have overcome this. Yes. I think that is at least how I would read it. Yeah. And uh, he then, as he's uh, attacking the quadrant... Um, With his live and dead feet. Yes. Uh, the uh, Fadala finally has some kind of emotional reaction. A sneering triumph that seemed meant for Ahab, and a fatalistic despair that seemed meant for himself, these passed over the mute, motionless Parsi's face. So that's very interesting. In some sense, uh, Fadala is expressing sneering triumph toward Ahab and fatalistic despair toward himself. I... Yeah, I, I looked at this a few times, and I was like, okay, there's a few ways you could read this. One, he is triumphant over Ahab in the sense of, like, ah, Ahab is not equal to the sun. You know, if, if we're to take him as a sun and fire worshipping figure, someone who sees those as marks of divinity, then, you know, Ahab is incapable of standing up to this. He is, you know, this is a triumph over him, but I'm still going to be dragged down. Or you could read it as seeing Ahab as having successfully understood or succeeded over this instrument and this understanding and having seen his right relationship with the sun in some way, but that still means that they're both being dragged on to some fate. Yeah, I, I'm developing a little bit of a theory about Fidala and Ahab, and mm -hmm. you know we'll see how this bears out in the narrative. I'm sure I'm not going to get like a straight-up answer to this, but I'm starting to feel as though what's going on with Fidala and Ahab is that Fidala is engaged in the kind of, like, metaphysical conflict that Ahab is, right? The conflict between Ahab and the white whale, which is in some sense maybe a conflict between Ahab and God, or mm -hmm. Ahab and, and the devil. Material world, or, something Yeah, Ahab like that. and the entire world, something like that. And I think Fidala is not actually allied with Ahab. Mm. I think that, like, I think that Fidala is essentially on, like, a suicide mission to undermine Ahab. Hmm, an interesting possibility. Um, Fidala is his steersman, and he does follow uh, Ahab's orders directly. Yes, like, I think Fidala is, is, I don't think Fidala is trying to stop Ahab from pursuing the white whale. I think that what may be going on here is that he is uh, carrying Ahab to the site of that catastrophe and maybe not even really personally ensuring that it ends in tragedy, but just, just kind that of... that is what will happen by the nature of the thing. Yeah, and kind of like witnessing it. So he is, he is helping Ahab to get to the point of self-destruction. I think that's kind of what's going on here, yes. And, and like... Interesting theory. And, you know, if, if you were to say that, like... Uh, 
that there is some kind of divine principle of which both the sun and uh, the white whale are in some sense representative, then I think it would be fair to say that Ahab is opposed to that and Fadala potentially worships it. Yeah, I... I'm not saying... I'm really looking forward to the candles. Yeah, so I... This is all, like, speculation, and and, uh, I I really don't know um, exactly what to make of this, but I do think that this leads to one of those weird ambiguities here, right? Where it's like, is Ahab trying to fight God, or is he trying to fight Satan? And, like, is Fadala, like, someone who has, like, deep understanding of the truth of the world, and, like, sort of divine powers or is he like a devil or like in league with devils and i think maybe one of the answers to this book is that those are not separate things yeah yeah um. i think that's definitely a possibility oh <sighs> and you know this is also the moment where you know uh Everyone is looking at Ahab stomping on his, like, you know, presumably quite expensive and, like, uh, you know, fancy object. It's, a, it's got colored glass lenses and everything. It's a very good quadrant. They just watched him destroy it. And then he tells, turns around them and shouts, To the braces! Up helm! Square in! Which, and, that is the command to turn for the equator. We are going for the season on the line. Yes. So, yeah. Um, God. And there's, um... Uh, it's described as this, like, beautiful moment of... Okay, if you've ever watched a movie with, like, sailing ships in it, with big sailing ships in it, so if you've watched, like, Pirates of the Caribbean or Master and Commander, they always have the external shot of, like, a boat tacking across the wind or turning after someone's made the command. It's this incredibly majestic turning motion. Yes. that's Possibly this moves me more than most people, but I... It moves me. I mean, it clearly moves Ishmael, too. Oh, yes. No, it's, um... It's described as this uh, beautiful turn that, um, you know, uh, rushes, you know, down the wind and prepares the Pequod for this final direction. Yes. And uh, Starbuck and Stubb are watching this, and Starbuck comments that, you know, like all fires, Ahab will someday burn down to ashes. Yeah, uh, it's the, the actual line is... I have sat before the dense coal fire and watched it all aglow, full of its tormented, flaming life, and I have seen it wane at last, down, down, to dumbest dust. Old man of oceans, of all this fiery life of thine, what will at length remain but one little heap of ashes? Yeah, and and Stubb, as usual, has, like, a very, um, you know, uh, prosaic response to this, uh, but I think one that is also, like, meaningful, right? Yeah. I cried Stubb, but sea coal ashes. Mind that, mind you that, Mr. Starbuck. Sea coal, not your common charcoal. Which is great, where it's like, ah, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, but before he burned out, he was great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he adds something else. Well, well, I heard Ahab mutter, here someone thrusts these cards into these old hands of mine, swears that I must play them and no others. And damn me, Ahab, but thou actest right. Live in the game and die in it. So... You know, Stubb is kind of saying, like, who cares what happens after death? You play the hand you're given, you live your life at the moment that you're living it. And uh, I do think that is in some sense also Ahab's attitude, even though in Ahab it is much kind of, like, deeper and more complex than it is in Stubb. Yeah, I think that the I think that the thing that Stubb and Ahab have in common is that both of them will act. And Starbuck, as we've seen, is defined by his failure to act. 
mm-hmm. again and again to the point that his action is even a half action where he's like, I'm not mutinying. I'm doing what you say. I will obey, but don't. Right. Like there, that thing where Starbuck repeatedly almost takes his actions, almost does things that would change the course of the Pequod, but every time he can at most soften it briefly or like slow it down slightly, but he never does anything that has a radical effect. There is no Starbucks mutiny. And so I think that on some level, you know, he's like, ah, I comment, I see how you're going to burn out, old man. This is, you know, this is just how it's going to go. And Stubb is like, yeah, but he's going to burn, you know, bright and he's going to be of our, you know, you know, of whalemen. And uh, also he's going to act. He's going to play the cards he has dealt. And that's the only way you can go in life. You're in the game. You got to play it. And it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. Stubb and Ahab do not have a lot in common. They are widely different. And at the same time, they still have a certain sentiment in common that Starbuck is just completely not present for. Yeah. Huh, so that's... Um, that's our chapters that's this week. That's the chapter, yeah. And next up, we go directly into the candles and uh, some rough weather and I'm going to be completely unbearable. Yeah, yeah, next chapter is indeed the candles. And next chapter is also us finally getting to the season on the line. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that some dramatic cool shit happens there. Oh, yeah, no, Um, it's... uh, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. But uh, before we can get there, what tune is it we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? 